Welcome to the Great Bass Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith. Tonight, we're going to have Dave Anderson as a guest. Let me get him on the phone. Dave's been a guest before. Hello, Steve. Dave Anderson, thanks for joining us on the Great Bass Tennis Podcast. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Excited about another one, and uh, I'll be coming in and out. I'm also uh, answering phones for the Dallas Stars Bleeding Heart. The Dallas Stars. Let's, so, uh, let, let's go back to hockey in just a minute. Uh, but for our our listeners that haven't um, heard you before on our one of our podcasts, long-time associate, I've got down here 38 years, leads a large coaching staff, flagship facility at Club Corp. May, may still be the number one company as far as in most tennis courts controlled in the U.S. Brookhaven Country Club. It's an amazing yeah, setting. I think it, it is, yeah. Amazing setting for the for the listeners. Uh, when you feel to me, I think when you you're there, you feel like you're in a tennis village. Um, with uh, that, why don't you tell us a little bit about the renovations? What's going on with Brookhaven Country Club? <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean it. Uh, it's been decades since. Uh, what well, was Club Corp? It's been uh, rebranded now to the to the name Invited, and um, so I, I have difficulty always remembering that. And, but with Invited now, um, they are, uh, you know, really trying to uh, kind of go with the changes and in the world and uh, accommodate the the families and 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 the way families operate, and, and so they're they're putting millions into. Uh, Brookhaven, which was the flagship club, which which began all of it back when it was Club Corp years ago, decades ago, and we're you know going to be the recipients of a lot of uh, of incredible things that honestly I didn't think I'd see in my lifetime there. Um, you know, fortunate uh, for us, we're not going to be lo- using or losing any tennis courts. Um, they're going to be it's probably going to be one of the biggest pickleball venues uh, in the U.S. Um, the U.S. national championships are being held there. One of the, either the Tennis Channel or ESPN will be there covering that in November. So with that, um, the facility is going to get a facelift. And, you know, all of our tennis courts, uh, you know how it is in East Texas with the, the soil under the ground. Steve, you spending time here and a lot of cracks um, that you keep coming up and putting Band-Aids on, but the only sure way is post-tension concrete, uh, the courts and, so they're getting uh, ripped up, brand new courts all on the outside. We're, we're um, going to get LED lighting um, throughout the entire facility, all new fencing, windscreens, et cetera. You know, that's just a few of the things, but it's going to, it's going to definitely um, polish the club up nicely. You know, I, I didn't mind the way, the way it was, but um, um, I kind of like the, uh, the, the little bit of, of, of grub and grime here and there, but uh, I think for, for the business that we're in, it was a necessity, and, and I'm looking forward to seeing the end result. They're, they're going to get all this done by end of October, so it'll be interesting to see. With It's great that you're not losing tennis courts. You're losing the, the backboards, though, right? Yeah, I was going to – I went by there, you know, the backboards. I took my grandson on a walk over uh, in that area and showed him, and um, the last backboard is still standing, uh, but you know it's it's dirt throughout now, and 
that area that those you know that haven't been there Steve's been there many times we had we had some really neat walls that uh, were a uh, part of the facility and and they're down and now they're uh, going to be Fidel um, wow. two big Fidel courts put up there in conjunction with the pickleball to help the racket sport growth you know that that we're seeing throughout the country now the facility for the listeners has Climate control, covered courts, clay courts. How many courts in total? Well, there's, there's, uh, you know, there were there were more. We lost, we did lose a few years ago, uh, a few uh, outdoor hard. But uh, so we'll have we'll have fourteen. You know, on that north side, Steve, where I used to teach outside all the time, we'll have fourteen um, brand new hard courts in a row. Um, then there's the, the, the additional one stadium outdoor hard court eight climate control there's uh seven with the cover but we we uh, uh did move one of the pickleball courts or converted one of the covered courts into four pickleball but we still have the indoor court ball machine which is a regulation court so i always tell people we still have eight additional covered courts which aren't climate control and then we have the five outdoor clay so not sure what that is when you add it up but uh in the thirties, the one court that's off by its side, I think I understand that was built years ago for Narantha Lova to practice on. Yeah, that's the that's the story. Um, it was before my time. Uh, I was probably, you know, right around the time I was with Ian Tyler, and I know she was a you know avid player here in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Lived over kind of in Fort Worth, I think. I knew she played at Shady Oaks, where we had gone for a conference one time. Um, they built that Omni Court over there. The, the, synthetic grass with the sand in it and uh for her so she could practice you know on on a semblance of the grass courts and so yeah um i i bumped into nancy lieberman uh lieberman about a year ago on the courts and tried to pick her brain for a few stories about that era but she was quite busy and didn't uh have have a lot of time to talk but she's an interesting lady the last match out in the college uh, final between U- University of North Carolina and North Carolina State was a girl that was a accomplished basketball player. For our listeners, Nancy Lieberman, uh, basketball player, you get on YouTube and research uh, what she did for Naratolo as an athlete. I think tennis players should really master two sports. I mean, obviously, so- soccer is very good for footwork. But basketball is such an inexpensive sport, and you can you, know, you can do solo drills, and I guess you can do that in soccer too. But it's very easy to play one on one and play pickup basketball in a driveway. But yeah, Nancy yeah. Lieberman. With one thing yeah, about, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no I was just going to say the number of pros. Why don't you share that? How many pros on your staff? Uh, you know, we typically carry between twenty twenty five pros um, full time. Um, there were two when I got there 31 years ago, almost. And, uh, you know, it's grown quite a bit. The, 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 the pros are all, um, you know, taken through the training. Um, so there's continuity throughout the entire staff and, and like anything, just like a junior program where you have some, uh, kids that, you know, really go all in and, and try to acquire the, the information and do it. I think the same is true with tennis teachers. Um, but I think that the competency level throughout the 25 is, is pretty high. And, uh, um, some of them I'd say, uh, you know, really own it because they began in the program at 
four or five years old in the early childhood program and went off to college and came back and they've either taught somewhere else or just come straight here. And, and, uh, you know, it, uh, you know, they're in their mid thirties now and, and have really stayed the course on it. And I think that, you know, they formed the, formed the foundation for their teaching to be really successful in their careers. No, I don't think enough people in America know American tennis know what you've done there. I've, I love the bit, the, the setting you have by the ball, ball baskets where it's either near, nearly 500 or more than 500, you know, truly developed tennis players from your place have gone on to play in college. That's a, a great effort. That wall's down now. That whole building, that whole, that whole little uh, area is down. Yeah, so I we're guess, trying yeah, to find I, it. Yeah, I can yeah, see where that, no, it, yeah, that was yeah. outdated. I can see where that would be rebuilt. Yeah, so that that was taken down to the ground, so we're trying to relocate that board. Uh, that all went down about a month ago. So, yeah, that's a that's a great board. I think there's a story. I mean, it. I've always said it'd be fun just to, to, to get everybody together and just go start with the A's and go all the way down to the Z's and just tell the story behind each of those names. Um, yeah, no, the some are tremendous success stories and, and some are more stories of failure, to be honest. And, uh, you know, in regard to maximizing their potential, but they all went on to play. So that from that end, it's a victory. Oh, for sure. It's a, it, it's amazing when you think how difficult it is. You I mean, it's a discouraging number, but I share it quite often to try to get kids to wake up and, and get after it. less than 3% of young junior tennis players or junior tennis players play college tennis. I got one more question for you. Check your memory. I know you have a ironclad memory. You're interviewed by the Dallas morning news. I think this, I think this helps describe uh, when you first started there many, many years ago. How many, how many years ago did you start there? It's been, it'll be 31 in October. Yeah. So it was in your early days there, Dallas morning news. Um, and you were quoted as the country club is uh, a mile down the road. So the listeners, when you are on the, the Brookhaven tennis facility, there is a country club with a bunch of golf, a bunch of golf yeah. holes. But you, you don't notice that at first. But, uh, what did you remember what your father told you? You read the article. Well, yeah. So the, it was about two months into the project and maybe, maybe a little bit longer. And, and uh, you know, there was no really hardcore training slash academy if you want to use that word in the city there were there were junior programs and some good ones but so they caught wind of it and came out and interviewed and i was actually quoted as saying uh the exact quote was uh i got in trouble for the one you said that's another story but the quote in the paper said that my number one goal was to break the country club mentality in the city and they put it right in there Uh, and you know dallas Morning News was a big paper back then, still is, but it uh, everybody got it at their doorstep. And, and you know, typically it was either the Stars, the Rangers, the, uh, you know, Cowboys. That That's what consumed the Sunday front page of the sports. And uh, for some reason, the whole bottom half, the whole half page of the, the first page on the sports was this article. And it showed me with the girl, Lauren Walker who you watched play several times when you were there and she was on her knees hitting serves on a towel. And, and that quote was big and bold in there. And I remember my dad telling me, he said, I hope you have your resume updated because, you know, working for club corp at the time, um, which is the number one club management company in the world. And 
And I remember telling my dad, I said, yeah, I said, but I'd, I'd rather know sooner rather than later. And, uh, you know, if, if it was going to work or not. And so I, I, you know, I didn't really think about it when I said that to the, to the person, uh, doing the interview, but, um, yeah, looking back, it was, it was kind of a roll of the dice. I got to understand where your dad, like any good parent, the, the two, the two words gainfully employed. You're the, you're the youngest, right? Yeah. And, you know, when I found out about your program back in, when I was living in Minot, I came off the tennis court uh, at our indoor club there, you know, that were built by a rich doctor in Boston who happened to move to the area, luckily, and built four courts. And, you know, I was uh, going to school at the university up there already, and I was going to transfer either to Montana State or walk on it in Minnesota. And uh, that was my goal. And, Montana was, was kind of uh, a route I could have gone. Minnesota was more of a, I would have had to earn my way because you know, they were quite good back then. They had Hawk and Armstrong, Armstrong and they had some good Swedes. And, um, but I, my buddy who ended up being the best, you know, he's the best man in my wedding. He ran the front desk and I fed balls out there to people basically to pay my club bill in, in court time, which you need a lot of indoor court time seven months out of the year. And, and I came off the court and he said, Hey, David, come here. And he showed me the, the article that you had in uh, tennis magazine that I know you remember uh, when they, when they first kind of credited uh, the, the Harvard of tennis teaching for, for what you've done at Tyler, what you were doing. And I looked at it and I was like in disbelief that you could actually get a career path in tennis because, you know, growing up in where I did, I mean, it was like you either coach football, baseball, or basketball. And my dad always wanted me to be a coach anyways. And, and, uh, I remember going home and telling my parents, you know, I was thinking I was going to move to Tyler and it was a little bit of a, you know, kind of shock to them. Cause I think like your family, maybe Steve, where, you know, my oldest brother, three graduate degrees and studied abroad and, and, uh, the, uh, but I called my uncle who was a counselor at the high school and, and asked him to, uh, kind of do some research on it. And he said, Hey, it all checks out. And next thing I knew I was showing up in that room telling you I was going to play on the team. <laughs> Tyler, Texas, our listeners, yeah. that's where the, it's a beautiful campus, a two year junior college. And yeah, we had a, a good run there training tennis teachers for throughout the eighties. Um, David and I talked about him being a regular rap, rip, and rant. I got a, yeah. I got a number of letter R's here, but we, we, we've had a, quite a few requests for people from people to ha- have us circle back and review some of the beginning themes from our first podcast. Examples yeah. would be like forehands and backhands and single strategy, double strategy. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the, the, the background we have and, with the way we both have been trained, um, I think as far as uh, touching upon those um, review sessions. But the letter R, letter R um, you know, you always hear, years ago we used to hear the three R's, which the words don't really begin with the letter R, reading, writing, arithmetic. Yeah. But here are some words, uh, review, refresh, revise, repeat, which shorten it up for reps, rewind, redo, regroup, reinforce, uh, regulations, rationale, reasoning, which is one of the same, rumor, or rumors, 
here's a here's a long one ratings rankings results and records you know rant and rip um anyway yeah. with with that let me uh, just read off these uh well let me say this also about criticism and that, that's an area that i want to throw some things at you um yeah i think i tell uh goal-oriented tennis players be self-critical be your own best critic to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. You know, the best, the best are criticized the most. You know, just think of world-class tennis players. Some phrases related to criticism. Um, you know, you're under the microscope. There's nowhere to hide. You're on full display. You're in the public's eye. But I, one thing I would like to wrap, rip, and ran on, uh, we could circle back to all those letter R's, just... just just, just the UTR comes to my mind when I think of ratings with um, some criticism, one dimensional, old school, teaching everyone the same, too mechanical, too stiff. I don't believe in it. Uh, let me say this one again, teaching everyone the same way, a cult. We're often called a cult. Uh, hero worship, meaning uh, we uh, are always mentioning Vic Braden as well as others, but hero worship comes up. We're asked, who, we've, who have we taught? Here's another criticism. It doesn't look like pro tennis. And those guys are still teaching 19, in the 1960s. Um, they're teaching out of a book. That's a, that's a dozen. Um, yeah. what, what's the first thing that comes to your mind um, when it comes down well, to some the of first, those phrases? The first word that, yeah, the first word that, I mean, all of those, I mean, I'm very familiar with them. It, it's stuff that, you know, resonates around here still, and unfortunately, but, uh, um, you know, the word cult, when you said it, because I vividly remember, you know, when I had the, the opportunity, really, with Craig Tiley to, um, you know, be interns, really, under you and Tyler, and, uh, you know, in a smaller city, in, in a smaller city, everything kind of just... Uh, can become exacerbated even quicker, I think. And, and uh, you know, they, they often accuse anybody associated with the program that we were trying to run there, uh, you know, as a cult. And I think that, um, the, the, you know, ignorance is difficult to deal with. Um, it's different than somebody who's uneducated and maybe hasn't had exposure. And when presented with the information, they have light bulbs turn on and then they start to see it from a different perspective. And, and uh, I think that those kind of situations and people are, are from my end, pretty fun to deal with and, and help them kind of see the light, so to speak. And, and set them on a path, whether it's a coach or a player. But ignorance is a different animal, in my opinion. I think ignorance is, uh, you can spend all day trying to convince ignorant people in situations, and, and you just don't, you don't really have a, a, a fighting chance to, to make a dent. And um, I think with ignorance, you know, in my lifetime anyways, you know, as I approach 60 here around the corners, you know, uh, I'm finding that when I smell ignorance, I'm, I'm, I'm disciplining my mind to just kind of walk away from it because 
I think a lot of those comments, um, I would say a majority of them come from ignorance, not from the kind of people that maybe just haven't had the exposure and the education. And it's tough, I think, the deeper that somebody gets down the road without having, uh, you know, the, the exposure to the information that is available out there from, from the Great Base or, or, or some quality teaching, you know, situations where somebody's in the trenches doing good work. And, um, because when somebody hasn't had it and they're, they're, they're deep in their, their, their career path. And I think that the humility it takes to, to, you know, to stop and say, Hey, I, I've been going about this all wrong. Um, I think that's more painful for people for sure to do it that, to do that rather than, uh, just continue trudging along knowing you're, you're kind of doing it in a, in a very ineffective manner. But that, that's my thoughts on that. With the expression, you know, you can't fool a kid. You know, if what, ha- what happens in tennis is people don't really have that comparative experience. I think that there's uh, such a lack of understanding for core information in tennis that tennis teachers actually protect themselves. You know, you could, you know, Go to the S's, go to Syracuse, Shreveport, Seattle, doesn't matter what cities you pick. Um, you know, just say the use of video, use of slow motion analysis. But even with that, the machine is only as smart as its, as its operator. But it's amazing how we, overall, we don't, we still don't use video in the, the tennis teaching, the tennis teaching. Yeah. Part. Yeah. And it, you know, somebody asked uh, just, just within the last week, you know, because so many different people end up popping in on the court here, as you know, and and they said, you know, if you if you could say, you know, one thing to help like fight the fight that we're, you know, in it, trying to battle the ignorance, so to speak, and um, I think you know, it's just, and I, I I've kind of thought this, you know, in my life here that people just consistently go back to the fact that the ball's on the strings, you know, four to six milliseconds and and what, what to do to get there and then what to do during that time. I mean, it, it just eliminates so much of the, the, the unnecessary gibberish that, that happens in regard to skill production. And, and uh, um, you know, it, but it, it's just so, it's so deceiving because of the lack of, you know, effective slow motion analysis and narration along with that na- analysis. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I think it's a, a battle that, you know, is, I mean, I think with the efforts you've made and, and Andy and others in, in that have helped along the way with the, uh, many pros that have helped with the, the great base. I mean, I think there's a way better understanding, um, and, and just to try to, you know, it, it's like there's been these big drops of rain throughout not just the U.S., but around the world. And, and we, need, we need those drops to be bigger and then ripple outward more and just start to connect all over the map. Um, because there's there's a lot of good tennis teachers out there. Um, there's fewer great tennis teachers, in my opinion. Um, but there's you could take all of those and add them up and multiply it times 50. And, and there's that number of bad tennis teachers, maybe times a hundred. Yeah. And, well, I think with, um, 
just to define those, as you know, uh, just repeat it for our listeners, teachings, information transfer, and coaching is a human relationship. I think there's lots of great coaches for sure. Um, but I just, and I also think too that there's, you, know, you can look at it from so many angles. It's very, very difficult for beginners to get a good start. You know, it's many times it's the blind leading the blind and the inexperienced teachers are with the inexperienced players. And the parent in junior tennis, many times an un, uneducated consumer, they just don't know the tennis product. And the the mistake that, you know, if you're a really good player, you're a really good teacher. It's a, it's a bonus if you have that experience having played the game. But that doesn't mean that you can actually, I listened to Charlie Passarell on a podcast who was taught by Welby Van Horn, one of our pillars. And that's a point that he made is a teacher is somebody who can take a beginner and show them how to start, you know, start to learn skills to be able to play tennis. And a coach is somebody who has somebody who already has playing skills and then you work with them. I thought that was well put. Yeah, I think, you know, there's, um, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said about both ends of it for sure. I mean, there's, I think that, you know, there's, uh, to me, you got to be on the court, whether you're coaching, whether you're playing. I mean, it, uh, whether, whether you're a teacher, whether you, you, you herald yourself more as a coach, I think that, you know, you, you have to pound nails. And um, uh, I think that the, it, it is, it, it, I, don't, I don't see a, an end in sight for it with the thing you had mentioned about, you know, I, Say I recruit a 23-year-old ball banger that is a uh, fresh out of playing D1 tennis. He, you know, immediately the top juniors in the in the program migrate that direction in regard to um, wanting to be around, wanting to hit, and and uh, uh, with them and or her. And uh, it it's there. It, it, it you know I think there's there's a need for having those kind of people around for hitting lessons, hitting sessions and offering more generic type feedback to where, you know, um, I think you've always said, you know, sparring partner and to just emulate what they do in boxing, sparring partner puts a mouthpiece in and, and really takes punches and then throws some punches. And, and, uh, that, that kind of thing is, I think very productive, but it almost, seems to always in my experience with it uh generate a relationship where eventually two three weeks down the road the person is trying to tinker with the the student's game even though they really know that's not their role and but you know i i do think that that aspect of having a hitter having a uh somebody who can bang balls and and maybe give some insight to having played the the junior circuit and played the collegiate game. And I think that's very valuable, but I think it's a piece of the puzzle. It, it isn't the, it isn't usually the missing piece of the puzzle for a vast majority of the juniors yet. They think it is the parents think it is. Well, one thing that you've done for years and that's, I'd say right at the top of the list, why you've had so much success 
junior tennis is the train. You know, the 18, you should pull the 16s, and you go all the way down, 14s, 12s, and then you get to the caboose, and you have the early childhood development. You have the, the tennis for tots. Uh, why don't you comment a little bit on how people don't really understand the connection between, um, you know, one level and the next? You know, we, yeah, I, go ahead. yeah, I mean, it. Um, it's uh, before we got on the phone tonight, I mean, I was, my two grandsons who are five and three and, and, you know, they're just working on really lining the racket head up. And, and even though we're doing it uh, primarily just, you know, hitting the ball ground level back and forth to each other. And, and, uh, you know, the early childhood program, um, we're fortunate to have a, a veteran in, in terms of, uh, Mary Poe, who, uh, has been directing that, overseeing that, um, and, and she's got that kind of passion about it that, you know, I remember watching Greg Prezuto when I was studying with and under you, Steve and Tyler, and she has that kind of zeal in regard to the, you know, the, what she brings to the early childhood and, and she gets kids, you know, with circular swings and, and, and they, they learn fundamentals there. And, you know, immediately after that stage at seven, eight years old, then they're, um, graduated up to uh, really one of the best technical teachers in the country, I think, in Dion Krupe. And, you know, he's running kind of a tournament or academy prep program. That is what we call it. And, and so, you know, they, I mean, by the time they uh, get through that part of the program with Dion, um, the formation of the game is, is pretty much done and, and all the, all the hard work is done. And, uh, you know that that it's it's exactly what you said. It's the right start. It's not the quick start. It's the right start. And I think with the people that we have in place, it it, it is uh, um, happening at a at a better rate now. I mean, we've we've had it different ways over the time. We've never really, you know, deviated from our principles on it. But sometimes, you know, you don't have your your varsity team in there to play every game and. Uh, but with guy guy like Dion and then a, a coach like Coach Mary, uh, we're, we're very fortunate. And I think that it's the opposite everywhere else for sure. It um, you put the you put a, a a very inexperienced person in with the little kids, and it becomes just a glorified babysitting session for an hour. And not only do they not learn tennis, but the retention rate. I mean, it's just horrible in in regard to keeping kids in the sport because. Yeah, there's there's just not a lot of repeat. I mean, they go a session or two and they're out. And and um, but uh, I think it's the business side of it in that regard. I mean, Mary and and people like that, you know, they they deserve uh, you know the 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 financial reward um, to really justify their incredible skill sets at that level and i think it's just overlooked no, that's a good point you mentioned greg Prezudo. I, I i still have a copy of his book tennis munchkins that he wrote for dennis vandermeer mm-hmm. the three e's of a lesson you know education exercise and enjoyment you have to, you do have to camouflage education uh we had a gentleman in here this week uh, jackson bowen he has a business in the carolinas he has 125 part-time tennis teachers and it's it's so important to 
make sure it's, and that's, that's what our discussion was. He spent the day with me is that at every level, the, 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 there's no substitute for a good beginning. Uh, you mentioned Mary and Dion. They've both been with you. I mean, maybe Dan, Dion's been there almost as long as you have, and Mary, 20-some years probably. Yeah, Dion um, was the first pro, really, that came aboard. Uh, so he will be, I think, coming at, at that same number I'm, I've been, 30, 31 years, he'll, but he'll be about four months behind it. He came in about four months later. He, he tells a story, you know, and Dion could certainly have finished my sentences at that time, but he tells the story to the young pros that come in that his first week that he arrived, um, he observed. And um, it is the true story. And uh, he, he really didn't need to, but that was the route that he took. And I'll never forget that. Uh, it showed a lot of character, I think, humility. Um, and Mary's been here. I, I don't want to say the wrong number, but it's got to be getting close to 15 years. 15 years. Uh, Maybe. With that, talk a little bit about orientation. When a, a coach comes to work for you, how do you start them out? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, in the early days, it was different. The program was smaller. Um, I was able to do it in a different manner um, as time grew. Uh, you know, I've tried a bunch of different things. Now, the, the kind of the onboarding um, that we do is, uh, mandatory to go through the um, uh, tennis education uh, at the Great Base, the, the 20, 20 plus hour course. Um, you can tell the ones that really embraced it. Um, I, I even tell them before they come in to, you know, get a head start on it because once they hit the ground, it seems like it, you know, it can be busy right from the beginning. Um, but then what I do is I treat them like a player and um, film them and take them through their own game and then basically encourage them that anytime that they're not on court teaching, that they come to the court uh, that I'm on and, and they go through the, with the lesson that I'm giving, whether an adult 3-0 player or an advanced junior, and they just kind of go through the lesson. Um, right along with them and uh, and just keep building their own skills in their own game and acquiring a little bit more knowledge on, you know, drills, uh, corrective measures, things like that. Um, I also send them to other courts. Coach Andreas, who was on, on here a few months back, does a really good job of helping with the onboarding. Um, observation at different courts to see the different programs. Uh, as you know, we have a manual that is given as well that, you know, helps people understand kind of the whole system, not just technique, but the tactical side, uh, zones of the court, dimensions of the court, all of that. And, um, it's, uh, it's a process that some seem to go through and, and, and really pick it up quickly. And then others, um, seem to have a little bit slower time in doing it. Um, you know, I think that, uh, the ones who are really into it though, um, I think enjoy it and, and hit the ground on much more solid, solid ground than, than the others. You so it's worked well. You certainly have the luxury of a, a new coach comes in, teacher, trainer, teaching pro, whatever the title may be, the semantics. 
is that you can have them be on a court with Mary or Dion. So um, there has to be a high, yeah, the, high level of respect that they've, they've been on, on site for so long. Well, and there's, there's some people that, uh, yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's 20 or there's easily 15 names I could rattle off that are, are really, really good tennis teachers. And, and among them are many of the kids that went through the pro, they were through the program as kids and they've made it their profession and they're, they're really solid. Unfortunately, you know, I think everybody has, uh, different, uh, not unfortunately, but this reality, they have different motivations. Um, some of those really, really good tennis teachers have kind of gone the route of teaching only adults. And, um, uh, but I mean, two, I would say two or three of the better technical teachers on the facility are, are primarily adult teachers, which isn't a bad thing, but it, um, I think the, the sport of junior tennis certainly needs, uh, all the help it can get. Why do you, why do you think that is because of all the extra hours? Yeah, I think. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if I'm just speaking honestly about it, I think that uh, there's more money in adult tennis initially. I think that the longevity of the pros that, that go that route in the career, um, I don't see their careers maybe uh, as fulfilling, you know, trying to change kids' lives and get them on paths that, that can really, you know, set them up for their life in terms of work ethic, character, all that. But at the same time, I mean, you know, they're, they're definitely impacting adults' lives. And, you know, adult tennis, when you get six adults on the court for a group lesson, it, it certainly is more financially productive, um, you know. and uh, But I, I think that, you know, for each of them, it's probably a different reason. But I see, you know, I've seen really good ones that I thought were going to really make a go of it in junior tennis. and and you know, they've come to me and, and they just, they get worn out really uh, from the parental end. And um, they, you know, it just isn't for them. I mean, you know, my phone typically doesn't really shut down like yours probably. And, and uh, um, when we hang up tonight, there will probably be 30 texts from tournaments and, and, you know, from the time we've been on the phone and, and, but I enjoy that. And I think for some people it, it can become just a little too consuming for their life. Um, you know, and I think to, to do junior tennis well, I think you, you just have to kind of bleed tennis. Um, you know, it, it's not something that, it's not, it's not a, I think that you have to have that to be a great player too, personally, but um, you just have to bleed tennis. And I don't know that even everybody in tennis, you know, I would, I would say that it's a small percentage of people who kind of bleed tennis. Um, and, uh, you know, when they're cut, it, it, it's, 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 it's not, it's not for everybody in that regard, I don't think, but I think tennis teaching can be, but I don't know that, uh, uh, player and coach development is. I think for the most part, there's a lot more drama. Many times in adult tennis, it's, uh, winning and losing is not, not the same as it is in junior tennis. Yeah. Um, you know, I know a lawyer, you talk to a lawyer on the phone, they're, they, they hit their meter and, and they're charging you. Um, so um, especially if someone is married with children, there, there's a lot of time constraints in coaching junior tennis. And then there's the tournaments on the weekend. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you is technology. You know, we're always talking to junior players about how much screen time they have. 
Um, do you have someone on your staff where the new coaches coming in, you know, they have to practice demos and teach and send them to someone on your staff that can evaluate. I think that's one thing that, uh, is a positive with technology where, you know, Hey, film yourself doing a demo and send it to send it to me or send it to someone on your staff. Do you, do you do that? Type of yeah. Thing? It, so in the staff training sessions and, you know, when COVID hit and it, it really changed the way we've done it and we need to, to be honest, you know, I used to use that term from a few podcasts to go back to the future. We need to go back into that, uh, training that we were doing and, and, we actually have a session this Thursday and uh, I, I'm going to try to again, make that a, I, I mean, I know everybody has time poverty. It seems, I don't think everybody really does, but I think they think they do. And, um, but that was exactly the kind of thing that we did throughout the staff for, for the majority of 28 years until COVID uh, every Thursday. And so people would just simply just like tennis check and the, the lab that you'd run and, back in Tyler. And, um, so I would just simply have people film each other. There'd be four courts of, of pros staff and it'd be our staff divided into, you know, four courts, five, six per court. And, and we'd film each other and then critique. And then I'd have a senior person like Dion or somebody that was there at the time. Um, and they would critique the critique and, the, and, and, and take it to that level. And so it, it accelerated it pretty quickly. And we've been doing well since uh, with, you know, the onboarding and the maintenance of it. And um, but, but it's been because of the hunger of the pros that, you know, are, are coming to the court and just basically, uh, you know, constantly observing or constantly asking questions and working on their teaching and their own game in that way and taking part in other people's lessons and picking up ideas. But to me, there's no doubt that we have to go back to doing exactly what you just said. Uh, during the pandemic, it was amazing how many YouTube clips there were online, YouTube again, um, of people teaching in their garage. And it's, it's amazing. It doesn't take very long to find out that someone's really not a technician. Um, you know, yeah. it's like, okay, there's so, you know, I tell people, why don't you just look at Djokovic's ready position? I, I used to say years ago that the only thing that tennis teachers agreed upon was the ready position. And now that's not even the case because when you watch kids, they're in the ready position and they have an extreme grip on the forehand side. You can just tell right away that, well, they're not going to be playing approach volleys. They're not going to have options on the return. Um, most likely they're just going to build their game on hitting, hitting their forehand. But I do think that technology, um, you know, I, you just, okay, let's just do this for three minutes and film yourself, uh, you know, going through the serve, demonstrate the serve with your opposite hand. If you're a righty, film yourself left-handed, just shadow swinging and, and then have someone on your staff who is actually compensated for just, it's, it's a great way to improve uh, quality control. There just, yeah. there just has no, to be, be continual training, this continuing education. Yeah. Andreas, coach Andreas went through it. Just like you said, he, he was, extremely diligent in doing that. I mean, he hits, he's, he's probably a four or five player with his non-dominant hand. And, uh, um, I always tell him he's cleaner with his left than his right, which is, is really true because he never had done learn. 
Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, that, that actually a month ago, I I was kind of, you know, thinking of where to go, what to do in terms of this place and, and how to get to the, you know, get it down the road further and, and, uh, circling back to, to getting those kind of things going was, was right at the top of the list. With Dallas, um, it's like a city unto itself. I mean, I can remember Tyler, Texas is what, an hour and a half east of Dallas. And yeah, I spent a lot of time in Dallas. Many times we'd just be on a trip to and from the Dallas airport. Tennis in Dallas with pros working together. Um, I know years ago you were part of a pro association. You did a lot of things with uh, the nonprofit organization. I, did, I, I I was out there two different times. What's it called? The Dallas? Yeah, DTA. Mm-hmm. Dallas, Dallas, Tennis Dallas, Association. Dallas Tennis Association. Yeah. Um, is it cutthroat or, or pros uh, bad-mouthing each other? I mean, we're talking about criticism here. Um, and I know so many people that you've trained. I know I've trained uh, maybe a dozen people that teach tennis in Dallas or more. Um, how about that for yourself? Is there... Uh, bad mouthing uh, or is there the pros working together? I think that's a big issue in tennis. I don't think pros work, work together enough. Um, Yeah. I think it's probably more the latter than the, I mean, I think that bad mouthing uh, was way more prevalent when I first got here. And like I said, it uh, in a conversation with you before, you know, off, off the, uh, prior to this uh, talk in that when we came to this city, I mean, it, it, it was 30 some years ago and people forget that, you know, we used to kind of be the laughing stock of the world because we turn, we had people turn and keep the racket up high. And, you know, when, when we have these critics that, you know, shoot bullets our direction now at things like the great base is trying to spread it, it was only again, you know, 30 years ago that, you know, the world was teaching people to turn and bring the racket straight back and down. And that, that backswing was, was what you primarily saw when you watch many players at tournaments, junior tournaments. And so the, you know, the city was, was, you know, really thought we were just a, a kind of a freak show at a circus. Um, you know, turning, keeping the racket up, balance, things like that. And, and, but now I think, like I said, it, 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 the, the, the majority of the tennis teaching world is, has grasped at least that concept of, you know, circular swings, racket up high. I mean, it, it, I, it definitely, uh, 20, 25 years ago started to change there. And now it's an exception when you don't see somebody do that. So I think that the bad mouthing now is, is, uh, probably more isolated and it's, it's just from a general, I think, human nature territorialism of, you know, I'm trying to um, almost protect, protect my, my environment a little bit and which I don't think is necessarily healthy anyways for anybody, especially the sport. Um, the pros working together, I don't think they work against each other. I just don't think that we as a community of pros in Dallas work with each other, work in conjunction with each other. And I, I don't know that it's apathy, the reason that people don't do it as much as it is um, 
I think the typical person that's really, you know, that that's really into it and, and doing a good job in, in their efforts anyways. Um, I think that people are being pulled so many different directions. I mean, it, um, just to get through, by the time they get through the end of the day, I feel like that, uh, they probably don't have a lot of time because, you know, in the old days you, you reprimand a kid and, and that's it. And now you reprimand a kid and, and it's followed up with 30 minutes of phone call minimum. And, and, you know, it, uh, seems like every two weeks you're having to draw a program up, uh, again for a, for a junior. And, you know, and I always tell people the more, the more programs I have to draw up, the less chance you have to make it. I mean, the program's pretty clear, simple. Um, so explain that in detail. What do you mean draw a program up? Well, I mean, like, you know, it seems like everybody, they just, uh, you know, you use the word that I've always kind of stolen and used most of my life, stay the course. I think people just can't stay the course and, you know, draw a program up like they, they want to add, add this, add that. It, it kind of makes me nauseated at the same time when I hear junior players using the word team, you know, or parents using the word a team of people. Um, and I get it. I get it. Everybody wants to try to emulate the pros and, and, uh, what they have. And, and, uh, but I, I've always felt the tennis channel could do a huge service to our industry by just going back and, and, and not really, um, worrying about whether Serena Williams is going to be coaching Coco Goff, but go back to the roots of the player and show, show whatever they can dig up in terms of archive footage and, and stories that are factual on, on the developmental pathways of these players that do make it, um, you know, because <clears throat> that's, that's really, there's definitely things in there that could benefit everyone. And I, you know, I, I, I think that everybody wants to have their situation be a little bit unique to the people to their right and the left. And so, you know, they want their program to have a little bit of general population, but they don't want all gen pop. They want to have a little bit of solitary confinement in regard to their, their, their program too. They want a little, little taste of something else that um, the other people don't have. And they, they think that's what's going to separate and their kid is going to need that to get from A to B and so on. And, and I, I've really noticed that happen more in the last 15 plus years because um, it seemed like it never happened. Well, one phrase that we've used for years is it's very, very difficult to have a program because now the individuals become bigger than the program. Yeah. But, but I do think that um, on the parent side of it, you know, kids can be programmed out. In other words, you know, come to the program every day of the week and years ago it would be okay. You know, here's your option, take a private lesson or we have training on Tuesday, Thursday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then as a result, kids are not hitting the backboard, doing baskets, playing mini tennis, calling adults up for match play. But in Dallas, I mean, to drive across Dallas wasn't too many years ago. I was at your place, and I had some juniors from overseas, and we went to a tournament. A young player forgot his forgot his tennis bag. That it was like a 40, yeah. 45 minute drive. I said, "Okay, let's get get, get in the car. We got to go back and get your tennis bag." Um, but do you have the luxury all the time you've been in Dallas where, you know, people need to come to your facility. Obviously they come to your facility for expertise, but also they can come to your facility for match play. Um, 
are there people that you know were a, a disciple of Dave Anderson? They were on your staff, and now they're running their own program, and they're waving the flag. Where okay, you know, you can come. You know, hey, you came here, you did some work. There's a pro that lives much closer to you in this part of Dallas. You can work there, and then come here and play matches. Or do you find that once people leave your facility, they're trying to wave their own flag and do their own self-promotion? Yeah, I, I think it's more of what you just, the latter. Um, I think that um, when people have gone on historically, uh, you know, the good ones have ended up at places where, you know, they're, you know, if you, if you want to use that, term rivals or whatever i guess you could say but uh and they, they're at clubs that are trying to have their own identity you know some of them don't even you know I'll, I'll inherit a student here and there from uh some of these people and they won't even have mentioned their name or affiliation with their time training as a coach and or player at brookhaven um so you know I, it's not a hundred percent that way. Um, there's, there's some pros who definitely have, uh, stayed linked differently. And, um, but, uh, I think that for the most part, it seems like they want to spread their wings and, and fly away and, and, uh, you know, kind of <clears throat> set up their own identity. And I think that they, they, that's where they start deviating from the, from the path in terms of the, 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 the information, the curriculum and, and, um, you know, before they know it, they're, they're quite a ways off the path. You know, it starts innocently and, um, then all of a sudden that, that little fork in the road that they took takes them quite a bit off the path. Yeah. I know that a lot of times, okay, I understand you have to fill your own lesson book and you have to make sure your enrollment's up and you have to be able to go to the grocery store. But I think that's a big mistake throughout tennis in the U.S. is we don't sell tennis. We, you know, we sell the coaches selling themselves like my program. This is why my program's the best. And um, I just think that's unfortunate. Uh, for our listeners, uh, David was in Tyler, Texas with me for three years. Then he had autonomy where he was in the next town over where he ran. First it was one club and it was two clubs. And then there was, uh, like, say, Laura Hanna or Guy Weinhold. There's others that ran. There was, what, in the, the one town, there was two clubs. In the other town, eventually, there was four clubs. And yeah. we, we, we controlled five of those clubs. You know, and I, when I say control, I don't mean from a business standpoint. I mean as far as artistic input, as far as educational merit. And that should happen more in the U.S., where it's, here's the curriculum, this is the alphabet, this is the the sound and shape of A, and we agree, and now we're moving on to B. And I, I do think that it would be much better if tennis pros were not, they didn't have the feeling that they were competing with each other. Um, yeah. With, yeah, there's no doubt about it. How, how to achieve that is, uh, you know, at least, uh, I mean, there's going to be, in Dallas right now, as you know, the city's just exploded. I mean, it's it's just growing daily, and, I think that, uh, you know, it, it kills me to see kids may live on the same street in a particular city and go to different programs and they just never call each other to play a practice match. And they have a court, you know, at their high school or local park 
a mile away, and they're they're some of the top juniors in Texas. Oh, there's that, so, that yeah. happens. Yeah, yeah, there's so many things. Um, like I say even you know, pretty much the top juniors are not playing high school tennis. When yeah, it's almost not, non-existent now. And it used to be a big thing in Texas. Every, mm-hmm. you know, and I, they did it quite well in Texas where they, they had mixed doubles. I know they dropped it, brought it back. And then at most of the public high schools, the last period, the tennis team would practice and they would practice as a team. And then from there, sure enough, they could go to a, a private coach, but they, they actually bonded as a team. Yeah, yeah. When I first was in Tyler, I remember tell, being told, the kids from Tyler could not compete with the kids from Dallas. Yeah. And, and we had that small guinea pig program. And, and as, a, you know, as not the first five years, but the second five years, you know, and we, we had say less than 10 kids. Um, they certainly made their mark on uh, Texas, Texas junior tennis. Yeah. And that was at a period where every, every top junior in Texas, I mean, played, uh, represented their high school. And in the, even if they were top five in America, they still played for their high school. But I, you know, someone like a Chad Clark, uh, Julie Scott, you know, Chad played at Texas, Julie played at Stanford. Um, and they both did, they both did really well. Both of them, interesting enough, they, they really weren't crazy about traveling and they didn't really, uh, give it that much of a go in pro tennis. Um, and they certainly, they certainly were in the position to do so. Yeah. Um, yeah, they both could have made a living out there, but they, both of them, they turned down the USTA. You know, it was in 1987 where the USTA finally, and I shouldn't say finally, they, I don't know if they ever should have done it, what they did in 87. They put together a, a player development program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I scratched that word finally. So they put together a player development program and it certainly had its ups and downs. Um, it certainly is the most criticized program. You know, I feel sorry for the people on the inside. It's, it's kind of like the U.S. Constitution is um, something that needs to be respected greatly, but it's not. And um, same thing with, um, you know, people that put forth an effort to improve tennis. But uh, the, anyway, the governing body of tennis is, is very much like the government. It, 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 even if they do something right, they're still still criticized. Um, what do you, what do you think of that? I mean, I, I mean, I know you and I probably could have a contest on how many uh, people that we've trained that become became really really good uh, twelve and fourteen year olds, and then they were um, cherry picked by the USTA. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's happened a lot. It just happened. Uh, uh, boy, I think uh, returns today from uh, Lake Nona. Um, he was not really even on their radar and went out to uh, Easter Bowl in four teams and um, came really out of nowhere and took fifth place. And then he, um, you know, finals of the doubles. And next thing you know, a month later, he's, you know, being asked to go down there to a camp and. So it's, you know, it's, it's a movie we've seen before. And we also know how that movie ends typically, even if the ending's been slightly altered. Uh, You know, some movies have alternative endings and you get to watch them after the actual movie happens. You can click on a little uh, thing on your DVD player and watch the alternative ending. And and most of that, that's really what it reminds me of. It's, 
I think there's no doubt I, I had the chance to spend a few minutes with Wayne Bryan when he came here to do some clinics when we held the Rolex indoors years ago and NCAA indoors. And, you know, I spend a day or two with him and, and he, you know, he made the comment. He said, it's a shame that, uh, you know, the USCA wouldn't just give the funding, you know, and then obviously there'd have to be a, a caretaker for the, the funding, but, you know, to a city like Dallas and then, you know, to have the, the funding go to these, programs like yours where uh where where the players wouldn't have to uproot uh, something that's working and uh you know and and slow down this train that's going the right direction and and said they uh really out of justifying what is the usta player development program they have to they have to justify it somehow. And, and in order to do that, they're going to have to try to corral people. And, and, uh, most of the people who are involved in it for any length of time, um, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's short lived at best. It's kind of like when kids are drawn to, you know, parents are drawn to, uh, some of the academies, the big name academies in South Florida or wherever. And, and, um, you know, they, the academies aren't typically retaining people for 36 months because uh, after I'm, I'm glad first, you, first year, it's done. Say that again? Go first, ahead. I, yeah, I interrupt, interrupt you. I just wanted to say I'm glad you mentioned academy because it's not just the USTA. The academies are, you know, the USTA will roll out the red carpet and there's no fees charged, but academies will have the backroom deal and the cherry pick players going on a scholarship. But what, what, I interrupted you and you said one year. Go ahead and go back to that. Yeah, I think I think that 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 relationship that's formed with players during those times seems to have a shelf life, you know, 12, 18 months. And, and then, you know, once the smoke clears, um, people I think are aware whether there's substance or not. I do think that there's a lot of perks that come along with it. And I think the perks are really the greatest incentive. And I wish there were a way to get those perks for people without, kind of polarizing them and taking them out of environments that are obviously working for them. Um, but I think, you know, it's no different than when you said, you know, pros working together in a city. Um, uh, you know, I think it just comes down to ego and, and maybe uh, defense mechanisms, territorial attitudes, whatever it is. But uh, um, at the end of the day, you know, I think, I mean, I can tell you, I have to slap myself in the face and remind myself all the time that, you know, when I wake up in the morning, it's it's really got to be for the good of the game. Um, everything that we do, I mean, the game, you know, we all that are making a living in it at all, we we owe we owe the game of tennis, and you know, I think right now, more than any period in my life as a teaching pro, as a coach, I think that right now. I mean, if there's a time for people to come together, we, we better band together because uh, the game of tennis needs a lot more players coming into it. Oh, now we're competing with Padel and, and pickleball. I yeah. t- told someone just today, uh, I'm saying, no, no, we we have to join pickleball. We have to teach people tennis skills to play pickleball because if you learn tennis skills, you can play pickleball. But if you just just learn to play pickleball, you can't play tennis. You know, coming back to the letter R, refresh, um, you know, it's, it's great to have you mention Wayne Bryan. I think people have forgotten the letter that he wrote 
a famous letter on, on how to improve tennis. And initially, yeah. his intention was not for that to be shared publicly, and it was great that it was shared publicly. Recently, one of our coaches, he was watching matches. Uh, it was Canadian kids and U.S. kids, um, 14s and 16s, playing at Lake Nona. We had a rainy day here a few hours south in Boynton Beach, and we're watching matches. And, you know, we had um, one American gal we spent a lot of time with playing a Canadian gal, uh, that was in the 16s, the four-hour match. We had uh, an American kid that we've just done some film work with. And then there were two Canadian kids that we've basically been in what we call our system with. Um, but, we, but with that, um, comes back to, you know, start the course, stay the course. Um, you know, what Wayne Bryan was saying is that the, not to be, and he, he was the one who used the term cherry pick. I think if people don't really stop and think about how the brain works. We we had a we had a national coach. Uh, you know, things get back to you if you're that open and go. No, I wouldn't go and work with the people associated with the Great Base. And then the follow up comment was, "You need to do a blend of methods." And it's like, mm. did you really just say that? Because that's what the Great Base is. Most people, it's not a lack of intelligence; it's a work ethic. You know, if people really want to understand what the Great Base is about. Uh, they have to, you know, they could go to the content. They need to go to the reading list that we recommend. I mean, uh, it should just be mandatory that, that tennis coaches, the USPTA PTR, I've been a member. I know you have. I've been a tester 40 years. And um, that fact-based test that Braden used to have, you know, that you know, tennis coaches, do they even know the length of the court? Um but, you know, Bob Ryan, I heard this on the Tennis Channel, you know, it's like, am I, am I missing something here? You know, he's up, he's going to be inducted to the Tennis College Hall of Fame. And, and the person commentating said that Bob Ryan's really, really positive because the, the, the players are serving and volleying in doubles. And I'm, I'm watching it. I, I just don't see it. I mean, I just don't see it. They're, they're not serving and volleying. It's, um, you know, they think about one-dimensional, yeah. one um, that's just becoming a lost art. Let me ask you a question. Uh, you're from the tundra. You're from North Dakota. Um, Minneapolis, I've only been there once to train coaches, but beautiful place, beautiful city, the great hardy people. What's the difference between becoming a tennis player in Moscow and a tennis player coming to Minneapolis? The climate's pretty much the same. How would you answer that yeah. question? Uh, well, I mean... I love Minneapolis. <laughs> it's one of my favorite cities. Both my brothers, uh, went to, one went to U of M and, uh, the other one went to a private school, St. Thomas. Um, yeah, it, you know, it's funny you say that, Steve, because, you know, I, we had a player that was, you know, on a great pathway here. You bumped into the family down there at, uh, in South Florida a few times, a young girl. Um, they live down there now by you. And, and, you know, I was telling uh, a couple of the coaches I and a few parents and a couple of players the other day, I said, you know, if you took all the situations in South Florida that people are drawn to and, you know, the, the perceived prestigious academies and I, and, and you picked up that block of tennis uh, 
training centers and you move them up to Bemidji, North or Bemidji, Minnesota, or uh, you know, area north of Minneapolis. I said, how many how many kids do you think would be at home saying they want to go there, or the parents drawn to there? And they wouldn't, they wouldn't, because you know it's it's not sexy, it's not glamorous up in that area, and I think that the the, the Minneapolis Moscow is a great comparison, and the same thing could be happening. Um, you know it. You know how it is up in that area. Um, you know if you're a four year old girl, you're you know there. There's a lot of hockey up there. You're learning to skate early, and and whether you're male or female, and and uh, um, you're competing with that sport, um, which I think is a, is a great uh, supplement. That um, you know it it to me the climate. I, I was just talking about this last week, and how you know because the kids don't realize in this era that Sweden was dominant. That Swedes, I mean, every you know, I said just like you look at the. The women's side now, and everybody's over Ava. I said it was it was a, there was a period of time where, you know, every name was you went through the top twenty on the ATP. Um, seemed like every other name was a Swede, and uh, so you know, I to me valuing court time and having come from that environment, um, we didn't we didn't wait for the buzzer to ring on our indoor courts and then go out onto the court and go through a dynamic warm up and and catch up with our hitting partner to see what we were going to do. I mean, we were, we were sweating, even if we were just, we didn't know what we were doing, but we were sweating uh, upstairs waiting for that buzzer. And I mean, we were directly behind the court <laughs> walking on almost prematurely for that buzzer to go off. Cause I mean, 20 bucks an hour and a half for, for me was a lot of money to split even amongst four guys. I and mean, you, you seldom got to hit, you know, two per court. I mean, it was just, a, you know, you were hitting on half court, which, you know, in hindsight helped out because it got people to basically play on what's a regulation court with percentage slides. You know, when you go from center hash mark to the end of the uh, double sideline, uh, a little more narrow, but um, so I think that, you know, I, I think the same things can happen in those kind of climates, those kind of environments. I, I think it would have been, fun for you and I didn't, you know, go up there and do something years ago and, and uh, um, to see, see how we could maybe have impacted, you know, a state like Minnesota, which isn't known as a tennis powerhouse and, and, and see if we could have, you know, done something unique up there. No, I actually, one time, uh, lifetime sports, um, try to think of the gentleman's name. Um, he's Greg very laughing. No, I, I've met Greg. He came to my place to hang out for a day not too long ago. Um, uh, brain cramp. Anyway, he was a director. AJ Pan has that job now. He was a director for Lifetime Sports. They're really going major pickleball now. But they had mm-hmm. they had eight facilities in Minneapolis, and I had been up there one time to train coaches for Lifetime. John Brecken, a gentleman, put that together, and they had a smaller facility, which it wasn't, that's, that was not typically what, you know, lifetime is the Taj Mahal. They have these huge facilities and there was one right by a junior college. And I mean, you know, the people from Minnesota, it was just so simple. There was, there was a coach that came from a division three school, uh, McAllister, I believe. 
And yeah, McAllister. <laughs> so Mc, that's where that's right. where one of my brothers was going to get his graduate degree. So they were renovating their facility within within a week. I said, I just told these people, I said, well, no, I, I'd be interested. It was to go get eight clubs to work together and also go to a place like Minnesota and say, you can make tennis happen anywhere. A group, a group of us did that in Memphis not too long ago. And we collectively yeah. were, there, were there for 24 months to just to try to, to try to prove a point. Um, but anyway, um, Lane McCleary, Lane McCleary. Yeah. So yeah. I, spent, I spent a lot yeah. of time in discussions with him and, you know, you know, it comes down to, uh, he, he was the one who came up with the title pro education and player development. You need to have a director of pro education and player development. And, um, you know, Richard Hernandez, who was a classmate of yours years ago, we had a podcast. Where we're talking about group dynamics, but I think also too, is that, um, you can play other sports and you don't have to play tennis 12 months out of the year. You become an athlete. And then also, too, you can get so many people on a tennis court. And it's like, okay, we're going to go to town playing, playing tennis the, the six months of the year that we can play outside. But the other six months, we're going we're gonna to go inside and we're going to develop great technique. And, and we, whether it's skating or skiing or soccer or basketball, we're, we're going to become athletes. I asked a group of Canadian kids that were here recently, and the parents were in the room and we just went around and I said, I want to know how many of you can skate. And it was just very sad. I mean, I said, you know, public skating, it can't be that expensive. It used to be 50 cents. Maybe it's, I mean, it's certainly less than, less than $3 to go put on a pair of skates and every impulse, you know, just go public skating. And what a great way to work on your balance. Um, yeah. But coming back to two things that you mentioned, the Swedes, I wanted to say that in 83, I went to Sweden and they did at one point have six people in the top 10. I will have to get Andres Barbosa on that, the fact checker. But there were six people in and out of the top 10 might be the most correct way to say that. But they, they created 10,000 animators um, or they put together an organization. I mean, I had the book in my, my library. It was just you know basic. Here's the ready position. Here's a unit turn. And some of those things have just gone away. You know, static balance, being able to shadow swing a stroke. And... It's very much like years ago in this country where everybody could play baseball. I mean, I didn't play baseball, yeah. but I played baseball. I mean, I could go out there and catch a pop fly and I could, you know, take the ground balls during practice from the coach off a fungal bat or whatever. But uh, I never really could hit a baseball because that just wasn't my thing. You know, you have to spend hours and hours at any sport. Um, but it's too bad that we don't have that type of energy where, you know, the great base is if, if, if parents were to go through just a simple course, great base initiative. And, and that, that title comes from Richard Hernandez. Tennis needs a great base initiative. Um, but I, I want to touch upon one other thing from Minnesota is that John Brecken um, and hats off to UNC for winning the national championship and the, the outdoor national championship. I guess they've won the indoor seven times, but I, I saw this girl play and she was a hockey player from Minnesota, but she, chose to go to UNC because she wanted to be a pro tennis player. And John Brecken, I had a conversation with the parents. He told this girl, and I saw her play. She was in the lineup, you know, playing at the NCAs. Uh, this is just a couple of years ago. And John said, you should go to Florida and don't play any tennis for, don't play any points for two years. And I go, oh, that's, that's pretty healthy. And I, and I talked to the parents. I said, it would be very good to do it for a year. Um, yeah. 
why don't we, why don't you talk about that where um, it comes down to, you know, areas that were criticized is changing people's games and teaching everybody the same. And no one ever ends up looking the same. You know, it's, it's just amazing that we always say that um, the strength of the individual will come out. There'll always be individuality. But anyway, this girl, yeah. after four years at UNC, she's now trying to play competitive hockey again. And mm. it's pretty tough for a, a college coach. And I don't think most college coaches, that's just not what they do. They don't, they're, they're not looking to find a player that they totally have to rebuild. And you know, yeah. I, so I can understand where college tennis is recruiting. Uh, Andres Barbosa on one of our podcasts, he said that um, 90%, 90% of all tennis is recruiting. But uh, yeah, why, why do you talk college, about college tennis or just tennis? No, even junior tennis. Yeah. Even junior tennis. But why don't you talk a little bit about, uh, well, you teach everybody the same. Well, I mean, you asked first about, you know, changing people's games. I mean, it, it, you know, if somebody walks through the door and I would assume they're there for advice and information. And, and, you know, I, I think going back to your earlier comment, I mean, it can only be really effective for us if we validate it through documenting on video and then showing. And, you know, that's where I think parents get a bad rap. Um, sometimes it's very deserved. I think, mean, you know, just like coaches get a bad rap sometimes and sometimes it's very deserved. And, but, you know, when you, when you can have parents there and show video initially, uh, of the, the raw student that you inherit, um, it's really not that hard to convince people at that point, um, you know, that their game needs to be altered. And then I think you said it just, you know, a few minutes back, then it comes down to work ethic. <laughs> And I think that's where it gets a little bit fuzzy for everybody because that work ethic is on all sides of the, the equation and the work ethic has to be uh, there for the player. The, the work ethic to some degree for many players may have to come from parents too. And the work ethic has to come from the coach and or coaching staff. And the environment has to be provided where the, the player is going to be able to make the adjustment. It just doesn't you know happen from you know, trying to make a, a grip or swing alteration and then say, go play a set at the afternoon session. Um, that's why I love it when kids get injured. I, I don't ever want to see anybody hurt, but I love it when they get injured because it takes that element out and they tend to make their greatest technical progress during that time. I mean, it's just, it's kind of, I always tell them this is, this is a blessing. And, and I'm not just trying to pump you up with positive mumbo jumbo it, it's a blessing because the things that we've been needing to get done are going to get done now in the next day 10 weeks while you're in a boot or in a uh you know in a sling and um that's what i loved about covid when co when tournaments went off the table uh, there wasn't a, a constant mad rush from from the junior tennis team to play matches uh you know every day and people people thinking that's the answer and and it was just so isolated. I mean, it, it was a, it was a beautiful time in terms of uh, tennis teaching and coaching for me. I mean, I remember teaching 14, 15 hours a day. You know, we could only have one kid on the court, and uh, um, 
but you know, with us at the time. And, and, and so there was just, there, there was probably, it was probably one of the, you know, it was a really great technical period for many of the players. And then, um, but it, it didn't last long enough for some of them. There's so many things that we say, I think are worth repeating. Uh, you know, Vic Braden used to say, um, that kid's game, what game? He's got no game. He's lucky to find the bathroom with, yeah. but you know, Vic was a little nicer than I am. The Velvet Hammer, Vic wasn't even the Velvet Hammer. I'm being nice to myself, calling myself the Velvet Hammer. But that's where we film kids, put them through skills tests, have them play matches. I do think when you mentioned work ethic, overall, I, I've, the parent, the player, the coach, that triangle, it's a pretty safe bet most of the time the parent is the hardest working one. Uh, I, I, would, I would think that's often the case. You know, they're driving the kid. I mean, they're paying all the bills. Um, and, you know, that's that I tell parents all the time, you know, and I think that's a problem now that uh, here in this country it's so vast is that uh, young kids are not around their grandparents. I mean, Coco Goff, I mean, both her grand, both grandmothers were her homeschool teachers. I mean, that's, I'm sure that has a lot to do with her character. Um, but... Yeah, no, the, the work ethic and working on the right things. I think to, some people do work hard, but then are they working smart? Um, you know, Ryler DeHart, who I know you uh, know from our program, you came to visit a couple times when he was a young kid. And, I'm, I'm, I'm one in one career with him. Don't leave that out. One in one. I did tell him, I said, DeHart, I said, Anderson will play you. And then uh, the next day, I remember having said, you beat him the first time, but the second time, I, t- I think I told him, I said, you got to get your nose over the net. He's going to be there before you. But, but, yeah, you coached him up that night. <laughs> but, but, but anyway, <laughs> DeHart would always be frustrated because we'd have some really good player come in, and they would be there the first three days, and then we wouldn't let them play. You know, we would film them, and they, they would play sets, and we'd make a study of their game, and it's like, okay, you're scheduled to be here for three months or six months, and and that's what it's going to take to, to rebuild your game. I, th- I think that so many parents, I use one of your father, your late father, Hank, his line, uh, I spent my, tell me if I have it right, I've I, I spent my life saying the, the right things to the wrong people. I tell, yeah, you can't, say, you can't say the right things to the wrong people. With, um, you know, you tell somebody they need to take some time off from a tournament play, um, they just don't do it. I mean, they should, but they just don't do it. And you know, I, I mean, I try yeah. to slap kids over the head. I go, you, you know, at least when you're playing hockey, if you're not dressing, um, one of my brothers was, uh, it was back in the day where Americans didn't even get a look, but he was on a team that was in the NCAA finals and, and he didn't dress. But I can tell you that he was a very, very good hockey player. Um, yeah. But when you're a tennis kid and you don't play, your parents come for a parent weekend, you sit next to them in the bleachers. Yeah. And it's like, so I, I would become a tennis animal. I would just really, really practice. Um, Let me ask you a question, Steve. Do you find in, in your years in the trenches that there's kids that, um, I mean, I, I, I'm sure I can guess the answer, but some kids, you know, say that the average kid that comes in and, and, and we're, we're saying, hey, hit the brakes, you know, three three to six months to reroute a particular change, whatever it is. Um, just take a pause from competition. Do you find there's some kids though that are more, they're kind of an outlier in that way. And, 
and mainly because of brain type, learning style, um, they can kind of uh, hit the ground a little bit earlier and then just constantly have the, you know, the information flooded on a Monday through Friday, play a tournament, et cetera. Do you know, does that make sense? Uh, run it by me one more time. So, you know, some kids that can, do you, do you run into some kids that, you know, if you're making a grip adjustment on a, on a backhand, for instance, and, and the, the young player takes, say, eight weeks off, and where it only takes them about eight weeks compared to a, a kid that, you know, the, that most kids it would take, you know, 16 weeks or, or 30 weeks. And do you, do you have uh, that kind of individual often? Do you, do you run into that kind of person? Because I seem to run across some kids that can kind of do it not on the fly, but they can do it with a little less uh, time off from competition. And, and as long as it's constantly flooded in to their veins still Monday through Friday. And what are your thoughts on that in the forming of, you know, the, the necessary myelin? Well, I think it's, it's a case study. It's individual by individual. Um, certainly their athleticism, their fitness comes into it. Um, how the parents talk to them. You know, I, I think many times, uh, you know, the parents, they just don't know. Some of them just, they just, can't help themselves uh, they're a human scoreboard themselves and you know let's say it was a 60 minute lesson within within six minutes that lesson's been derailed or it could be a junior development afternoon a program where who's in your group you know just all the wrong questions who'd you get to hit with today? yeah and um you know in the intellectual quotient you know that's one thing iq i mean Braden used to say if if, if you know ten, most tennis pros can't, can't afford their own lessons at socioeconomic, yeah. socioeconomic functioning levels where, you know, there's a certain level of intelligence if a parent can pay for a tennis lesson unless they inherit it or have a money tree in the backyard. But um, instead of, you know, intellectual quotient is, do people have a sport intellect? And, mm-hmm. you know, opposites attract, and very often parents, parents will cancel each other out. I mean, I think it's really going to help the process if you have two parents that are athletes. And then also, too, is that the ego of the parent, um, you know, have they ever been in an environment where they got caught? I mean, what, what level of sport did they play? I mean, did they, did they get out of their backyard? I mean, do they have exposure? You know, it's one thing to have a kid have exposure, but the parents have to have exposure as well. And so, so do the coaches. Um, so there's so, so many factors. Um, yeah. Casey Curtis, who was a guest on our podcast, mm-hmm. you know, he, he was laughing when I said ITF stands for Idiots Traveling Foolishly. Um, mm-hmm. his kids, you know, that's one positive of the UTR is these kids that have a very low, low UTR and they're playing, they're traveling to play international tournaments. It's just out of whack. And, you know, you know, especially the boys are going, Mom, 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 I want to go to this tournament. I want to go to this tournament. And it's just the tournament's very overrated. Uh, so much money is being spent. And, you know, I think really say, hey, kid, there's just there's ATP points and there's WTA points. Just get better. Don't get confused with the alphabet soup of tennis. And I think it's really too that you know who's in your circle of trust. And yeah. I think that's where kids manage kids. If you, um, it, it's so important to have a, a an incoming twelve year old be around thirteen, fourteen year olds that are are better than them. 
Uh, unfortunately, they think that way. The alpha dog, uh, who's the best player here? So there's so many, so many factors um, with, um, you know, I, I mean, I forever explaining to kids, you know, I've meet them when they're really young and they're tennis, they find out uh, they should know the NCAA rules and the current rule is you can take a gap year, don't enter high school. You can continue to take uh, advanced classes, but don't enter high school. Then, you know, you can mention uh, like a Tom Brady, who was just about every top college football player, red shirts. Wasn't too long ago, it was just a few years back, Texas Tech won the NCAAs. 11, mm-hmm. out, of four, 11 out of 14 players on the team had uh, redshirted. Um, it, it always takes more time. It always takes more time, and it's not instant yeah. coffee. You can't microwave it. Uh, but I would say that most parents, most teaching pros, they have not been exposed to change. I mean, I think it, yeah. I think most people, I say most tennis teachers, unfortunately, it's, it's fraudulent, it's criminal. They pretend that they've developed a tennis player. Um, you know, that's like the strength of a Welby Van Horn. Um, you know, I just think the tennis teachers today, they, they we're going to talk to his son here on a podcast upcoming Stuart and with, um, you know, can you take a beginner from point A to point B? I think we should have tennis teaching tournaments. We should have form tournaments. Um, it's really, especially with what's going on with pickleball and padel, tennis is a very, very difficult sport. And the parent, you know, there's way too much money with the USTA. I mean, our, how's it go? Rap, rip and rant. That way too much money is spent on player development. Way too much money is spent on a kid learning how to play. Um, you know, there's many places, not at your place, but that you can only learn if you take a private. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or it, the, the tennis just becomes way, way too costly. So I, I think it's case study with trenches. But I, I mean, I think kids need to be told you can work on your game when you play. Because, you know, anything and everything, there's nothing new under the sun. If some kid's going to use it as an excuse. You know, I'm, yeah, cha- I'm, cha- yeah, I'm changing my game. And, um, that, um, but no, I mean, it's difficult. It's it's so many kids have spent, you know, you know, they're coming out and they're, you know, say they're 13 years old and, you know, they've had a full, not just a Western grip, but the, the position of the wrist and the elbow. And I always say they're they're about to hit their earlobe with the butt of the racket. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, but then if you understand the history you know, for pretty much a long time now, I've been the, I, I look around, I go, I'm the oldest person in the room. And I think history needs to be brought into it and start rattling off about the history of players. Um, you know, young kids today, they get beat up here and there. I mean, the, the telephone, uh, we just had a podcast on Gen Z with Steve Robertson. It's, it's not a eight second attention span, it's eight second filter. You know, you say, hey, could you do this? And they don't do it, even though they're a really good kid. And they'll apologize. Oh, I, I forgot. But they have their phone in their hand and they're, they're just constantly interrupted with, well, I'm going to go here. It's like, you know, um, I'm about a decade older than you, but you so, you know, pretty close in age in one sense. The technologies are changing so fast. When you and I were a kid, our parents would say, you're watching too much TV. Well, especially if you're from North Dakota, where I am in northern New York. The weather is lousy outside and 
But when we were watching TV, they could tell we were sitting on a couch and we were staring at the idiot box. Yeah. Now, now the, the parents, you know, the kids become so passive. You know, when I was a kid, you know, three brothers, you know, my father had this line, the house is not a gymnasium because, you know, we'd be throwing a ball around or, um, you know, but now the kids are very passive. They just go right to their phone, uh, mm -hmm. right, right to their laptop or their iPad. So, no, I, I think there's a lot to be said. I, I like what you said about, you know, with our criticisms that most people haven't been in the trenches uh, teaching tennis. You mentioned Craig Tiley, so you guys spent a lot of time together. Uh, Bruce Burke, who's coaching the University of Texas, I remember telling both those guys when I was running a workshop at Illinois and Bruce was the assistant, I said, you two guys never, you, you need to always, never stop teaching beginners. You always need to put yourself in a position where you teach beginners. Um, because the, the best, the, the best can teach and coach, you know, if you, if you, you study sport at a high level, um, Yvonne, who helps out with so many things here, he's been, uh, watching ice hockey a little bit. Cause I, that's my drug during the playoffs. And it's, it, when you listen to the commentary, it's just like tennis. They're saying the same things. They're saying the same things, um, mm -hmm. with, um, let, let me say, ask you that. Tell me about your son-in-law. He's a hockey nut. Let's talk a little hockey just for five minutes. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, he never played. He grew up here in Dallas. He, uh, you know, early on in his life really took to it because his dad was a huge hockey fan, Chicago Blackhawk. Um, actually Dean blaze. Um, who played for the Blackhawks was our high school coach and then went on to coach at North Dakota, won an NCAA championship or two. But, uh, yeah, he's a huge, uh, huge fanatic and, and, a, and an unbelievable Dallas stars, loyal, loyal, loyal fan. I mean, that shot that went in at overtime tonight or this afternoon, um, you know, we were. I was down with the grandkids watching it and wondering if he was in another. And uh, I was playing with the kids on the floor, kind of slapping the tennis ball like a hockey stick. And and uh, you just heard this beller in the house. You know, the minute it went in, and his TV was ahead of ours for some reason on our our TV systems here. And then, like two seconds later, I saw the saw the shot go in, and. Uh, it, you know, hockey, um, you know, I, 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 on my, on my list of sports, that was probably number nine, which, uh, tennis was 11 in terms of my competency level. So I wasn't, you know, really good in tennis and I wasn't great at hockey either, but my cousin was a great hockey player and, um, he was about six, seven years younger than me. And I remember him from a very, very young age. He was a goalie and his name was Fred Anderson and, and the Western half of the state in North Dakota didn't uh, do nearly as well in hockey through my lifetime there. <clears throat> they were always kind of overshadowed by Fargo and Grand Forks. And my cousin, uh, the discipline that he had, you know, in, in his approach to his developing his skills, it was unbelievable. He had a lot of God-given talent. He had just lightning fast reflexes and he was a big strong kid 
And he was the first, it was, he, he helped lead Minot High to the first ever state championship final. And then, um, but he was constantly going up into Canada. You know, he was recruited. I think your brother, I think, mentioned his name one time. He was, he was not a superstar, but he was, he was one of, certainly one of the better goalies playing in high school. And, uh, he was constantly going up into Canada to goalie schools and, and, uh, you know, the amount of, detail that he had to put into uh learning technique with his skate with his you know with his uh stick with his glove it, it was just amazing to me way way beyond anything i ever envisioned to play at that level and and you know as good as he was he got to go play at university in north dakota or at least he got to go on the team and and uh he had eddie belfour ahead of him who ended up winning the Stanley Cup for the Dallas Stars, and and uh, he, you know, he he was used to being a big fish in, in a small pond, and um, he got there and he wasn't getting any playing time, and he, he's told me the story many times, and he he asked Gino Gasparini, who was the coach then, you know, what was going on, and Gino looked at him and just said, "You're not good enough," and he ended up quitting. He left uh, college hockey and went on to uh, join the Marine Corps, and he became a reconnaissance leader in the Marine Corps, and you know, which is kind of a unique mentality, which kind of fits a goalie in terms of their brain type and that. And then he went back to school, ended up getting a PhD, and, and he's doing great in his life. But uh, hockey, to me, you know, is I'm glad I got to experience it in my youth. Um, it became apparent to me that I wasn't going to be as good as the people that were around me. There were a lot of hockey players in the city. I played basketball primarily, but the mentality of the sport is what I really liked. I mean, it was just, it, it is what it is. And, and, and that's what, uh, you know, on the back of one of your shirts from back in the, when you ran tennis Smith in, in HTC in Tampa, I mean, no whining, no excuses. Um, it was much more like that. I'd be very curious to go back up north and, you know, go to some youth hockey games or or practices really and see if the mentality is the same because, you know, it's hard for people to imagine that uh, Dean Blaze, and I shouldn't have used his name, but, I mean, the hockey team, you know, they they would get in an an old racquetball court at the end and, you know, if they they needed to settle things, you know, the coach had throw two set of boxing gloves out under the, center of the mat and people would uh, have to lace up and go at it and yeah. just different with hockey I'll touch touch on a few things um, first of all the Dallas Stars they have the same colors as uh, North Dakota fighting Sioux yeah it looks yeah. it looks like because I mean I remember watching North Dakota play hockey when I was a kid actually just recently Craig Conroy from our neighborhood he's obviously much younger than I am he's just 51 years old American hockey player, but at age 51, unlike your uh, cousin, after the 1980 Olympics, Americans, scouts were looking at Americans, but he was just named the GM. He had a great career, played 1,000-plus games in the NHL. But uh, his mother, Marianne Taylor, I asked uh, Lionel Hewitson at a funeral. I said, because Craig Conroy, you know, many people from Clarkson College or Clarkson University have made the NHL, but he's the only kid from Potsdam. 
I don't think uh, Andres Barbosa could get on that top of that one as far as fact-checking, but made the NHL. And I, he didn't start playing hockey until he was like 11, and that's like ancient history. I mean, you're yeah. like, so you, you have to really get on skates early. But I said, why did he make the NHL? And he said he was the first guy on the ice shoveling snow. I mean, so it's you got to get out there and shovel the outdoor rink. I mean, yeah. it, it just comes down to work ethic. You mentioned Eddie Belfort. I mean, he's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Jimmy Rogers from uh, Winnipeg, he went to our tennis tech program in the 80s. And yep. um, he was a goalie. He's like 16 years old. He told his father, I'm afraid of the puck. Anyway, we have to get, we have to get, you know, we have to get Jimmy on. We'll have to do a lot of editing because he's one of those fun guys who you can't say a sentence without the F word. He's actually, all the years he was in tennis, he's, he's now making his living in hockey. He's doing hmm. doing some scouting, but passion. My uh, my father was um, civil engineer, and on his car he had this huge antenna, and he could go to the highest place in the county, and he, wherever Clarkson College was, he was going to find a way to listen to the game on the radio. And then we had an antenna that went to my mother used to say, "Yeah, it goes to the moon," and we could turn it towards Kingston, Ontario, and. In this small village in upstate New York, when we moved 150 miles south, we we were the only village um, who got the hockey game. So I think passion coming from other sports. But for tennis listeners, uh, the one great thing about tennis is it's not political. You know, when um, a kid is on the bench, um, you know, in tennis, it's kind of like wrestling. Okay, we're going to have a wrestle off and. I think I know that coaches have gone away from that. I don't think that's right. I think coaches should have a a challenge system. But um, you know, Rod Laver's line: "You can let your racket do the talking." Um, with uh, you know, so you can you can climb your way up the ladder. But if um, you know some coach doesn't think that you're good enough to make the team, it's that's the coach's decision. It's, it's, it's yeah. a, there are a lot of pe- a lot of people that. Have, that are on a bar stool and uh, and, and they're telling you they got a bad bad shake uh, in sport. And then you can, if you're a jock, you can you can you can almost guess that you know it's a legitimate story. I mean, there are some people yeah. that tell you, they tell you that they were a jock, and you just know after being around them for a few minutes that they weren't a jock. Um, yeah, for sure. One thing about pro hockey for people, if they were to go to a live game, they would to me they would fall in love with it. I used to not like to watch t- soccer on TV, but once I saw world-class soccer played in Europe, it was like, okay, I can watch this. But let me tell you about yeah. the, this, what's going on with the Florida Panthers. It's, uh, it's, uh, this is something that uh, TNT, uh, they're covering a lot of hockey games. They, they should cover this one point. So this kid, Matthew Kachuk, he's got uh, three goals, three overtime goals. And it's just, it's becoming a Disney story. It's just like, it's just the script is like too good to be true. Um, his father, so let's go through the Florida Panthers. They beat the Bruins, whoever had a record-setting year. And then they beat the Leafs. I think the Leafs were either the third or fourth best team. And now the second best team is the Hurricanes, and they're up 2-0. Two, uh, two, two so Keith Kachuk, father of uh, Matthew Chuck and I, you can't forget his mother. I mean, she's from Winnipeg, and uh, so like people from Minnesota, you use the word Hardy. So mm-hmm. my fa- my oldest brother, he drafted Keith Kachuk. He's playing for BU, and my brother used to like to 
draft people that were afraid of their mom. Now, so our, for our tennis audience, hang in there. Roger Federer was afraid of his mother. She's an Afrikaner. You know, you are going to ship up or shape out. So anyway, mm-hmm. Keith Kachuk, his mother is, you know, four foot 11. And my, my brother said that's why he was so good. He was afraid of his mother. And if you study, if you study tennis, um, it's, it's really interesting where, you know, the mother and daughter usually have a conflict. The father and son usually have a conflict. But if, for the most part, the success stories, it's the father, like say, I mean, Gene Austin, Gene Austin and Tracy, that, there's, there's, there's obviously exceptions to the rule. Um, but like Jaeger and her father, Connors and her father, Courier and the uh, mother, you know, you just go right, right down the line. You know, Hingis would be an exception. So anyway, Keith Kachuk, his father was a Marine. Now, then he was a fire, firefighter for a career, grew up poor. And so he was on talk radio, a national radio covering hockey. And the Florida Panthers were on their way not to make the playoffs. And, you know, he just kind of lit into them and go, they're just soft. They're just soft. And then, and this is the point that should be on TNT, Paul Maurice, the coach, he absolutely loses it. And, you know, and you listen to him and um, now he's a veteran coach and I'm sure he's doing things much different all these years later and he's keeping his cool and he's got a, you know, he's got a really fun way in these, these interviews. Um, I mean, you could see like the coach of uh, the Las Vegas team who was with the Bruins. I mean, you can just see the body, uh-huh. see the body language. Uh, Bruce Cassidy, I think. Um, but anyway, uh, Paul Maurice goes bonkers. He's just, you know, you, you can just, if you can read lips, it's F this and F that. And he just goes um, on a long, long rant. And hockey players, when the coach, you know, they platoon, they're only out there 45 seconds and they shorten it as the game, game speeds up or the length of the game, like overtime. But the coaches, the players look straight ahead and the coach is behind them. But in this situation, Matthew Kachuk, this is what should be on TNT. So the coach is going crazy, screaming, yelling, swearing, and all the players are looking straight ahead. And Matthew Kachuk is staring right at the coach and his head's going up and down. And, and that's when you can tell a kid is coachable. You know, you, when you watch a football player on the sidelines and, you know, there's 100,000 people in the stadium and the, 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 the eye contact between, say, the quarterback and the coach and the, they're just nodding their head up and down. Um, I mean, you don't see, generally you don't see that type of character um, in junior tennis. I mean, just here in the last week, um, I, I've, I've – Two different tennis players. I was at a tournament. I was at a practice. And the way these two players talk to their uh, um, their father and their mother respectfully is just that shouldn't happen. They just should not be that entitled, that empowered. Um, but that's a that's a hockey story for you. That uh, um, you know, no, it, it's like uh, when somebody's on fire, you know, stop, drop, and roll. And I think when parents or coach or teacher in school, whatever, it should be stop, look, and listen. And, uh, yeah, I have, you know. I've got kids, hug, hug your racket, stop, stand still. Uh, but coming back to the, uh, Moscow, Minneapolis, uh, question is, you know, is it a business or a sport? And in Russia, like here in the U S for years and years was unfair for women and the best jobs went to men. And for the longest time in Russia, the former Soviet union, Soviet sport that, Tennis was suppressed because it was an Olympic sport. 
So to this day, there's more female coaches in Russia than there are male coaches. But the female coaches, they they it's they they teach like it's a sport. And most most indoor clubs take one tennis court, and they just have up all this uh, basically equipment that you find in a, uh, in a gym for gym, uh, with gymnastics, and and they're, mm-hmm. and they're making uh, making the kids athletes. But uh, yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about? Um, I think that's something that people don't really know about what we do. Is I mean, I'm thinking, okay, um, maybe uh, need to change things and just run character camps. You know, instead of running yeah. instead of running technical camps, uh, because it we always tell people if you can't teach character, you're really at a high level. You can't teach technique. I mean, granted, yeah. that's one nice thing about the adult setting and what you said about pros is. Um, it's a lot of times teaching adult tennis, it's not like pulling teeth. You know, if they're serious enough to be in a clinic, they're serious enough to be taking private lessons. Um, you know, they're going to be much more open to learning. There's not going to be as much interference, but yeah, I think it'd be great for our listeners. If you could touch upon that for a little bit. Well, you know, the, the character part of it, it's funny you said that because, you know, Andres, uh, coach Andres, uh, who works here with me and, you know, he, he's, he's very intelligent young man. And, and, uh, you know, I heard him <laughs> laying into somebody, you know, about it, uh, you know, in, in defense of the great base really. And he said that, uh, he goes, the great base isn't about stroke production technique. He said, it's, it's about character. It's about work ethic. And, you know, circling even further back than the question you just asked uh, when people, you know, on the outside, I guess you could say that, you know, there is no outside and inside really. It's just when they, when they are looking in and, and making these assumptions about everybody being taught the same and this and that, you know, many people have never had the, the privilege that say I had or Dion and, and Tylee and, and the hundreds of other people that, you know, got to watch you work. And, you know, watching you work and mold players' games and their character and their work ethic over periods of time, not just a weekend. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's a different animal and than, than maybe what they see. They, they may not even really have an accurate picture of what they think they're looking at. And, and I think that, you know, to equate it to, Vic Braden, who I think many people, um, you know, I only had the privilege of going out to Coto once and, and St. George, Utah, another time. And then, uh, uh, you must've saw him and but, you, must have, you must've been with him in Tyler, Texas time or two. Yeah. There. And then I think you were, you and I were here in Dallas when he came through for that weekend and was kind enough to, you know, come out and do a clinic here at Brookhaven again, during the NCAAs, the Rolex. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but the, the average person that had actually no exposure to him, their their perception of him isn't going to show his brilliance, in my opinion. And say, say that again. Their perception of him, if they if they maybe only get to read a book about him or watch a video of him, I don't think they're going to get to watch understand his brilliance at the same level as you know living around it being around it and it's almost like learning a language i mean you can you can learn spanish and 
in high school or any time in your life in a classroom and that, but immersing yourself completely in a culture is certainly the, the most effective way to, to round out your, your ability to, to develop that skill. And, and I think that, you know, it, you, you can't learn to teach tennis at all if you're not teaching tennis. And I mean, to me, um, the character that it takes to become a tennis player or a tennis coach, I mean, they're, they're totally intertwined. They're, they're not separate. It, it takes hours and hours and hours when no one's watching of, of effort to, you know, to be able to develop the skill sets and, and, uh, you can't teach enough tennis if you want to, if you want to become a great teacher or coach and you can't play enough tennis if you want to become a great player. And I mean, there's just not enough time in the day. And, um, and, and, you know, it, it's not about having the hours of the program. It's what, you know, you've always said program plus, I mean, it's a phrase we use constantly around here. It's, 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 it, it is a, it is a test of character and, you know, it's, uh, without the parental support from a player's end, um, you almost have no chance. I mean, there are kids here I know that fear me way worse than they do their own parents. And, you know, they're, they're definitely on best behavior with me, and, and they, they aren't that way. And I think to some degree many kids are. I mean, when we go as parents, Jenna and I, to our parent-teacher conferences, and they'd say, so you know, so many things about our kids and we, you know, that, that weren't really reflecting what we maybe saw at home, but um, all positives from that end. And then, we you know, we saw more of the, maybe the, the negative uh, aspects of the behavior. But um, I think that the character of the player, you know, as I looked around at a boys level two four teams this weekend, I mean, I was really proud of uh, a lot of the things that I saw the players that were representing us in our, in our club. Um, and then there were things that, you know, I, I felt like putting an opposing club T-shirt on a couple of things, you know, because I didn't want to have any association with it. And, and so, you know, it, I don't know. I just think, I think that, you know, you stop that stuff around your own dinner table as a parent. I mean, and, and if you don't, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to end. I mean, a coach can help you as a parent to, to rid of, get rid of that, but, um, and they may be on their best behavior with us if they have a little fear of God in us, but, or, or, you know, but it, it's going to come to the surface. It's in there and reforming character behavior modification is, is I think much more difficult than changing a grip. Um, yeah, because you have, it's it one, has to do one, with the breaking of denial. You have to yeah. break denial. Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say in a lot of ways it's, it's one of the same. I mean, it's, it's adaptive behavior. I mean, you're doing this and you got to do that. I think 10, 10, and 10, you know, um, 10 years, a coach, I'd say a tennis coach, using that title. So they put 10 years in. Well, they're getting to coach another group of kids, another group of kids, another generation of tennis players. The kid, the kid's a kid. So say it's just from like the age of 8 to 18. You know, they don't have wisdom. I'm always telling kids, you know, your parents have wisdom. Because wisdom is knowledge with time. You know, a kid just has wisdom teeth. But a coach, so they, they, 
you know, some, many times they're skating away, uh, not to get back to a hockey term, but uh, there's no accountability. But with the parents, you asked the question earlier, um, as far as people changing and changing at different rates, a coach uh, can work and change at a different rate. I mean, what type of work ethic do they have? You know, we have that one course, it's 25 hours long. Well, it's only 25 hours. You know, if you were to just say, okay, an hour a day, you're going to knock it off in a month. And, and collectively, the five courses we have, maybe it's uh, 35 hours. So you still could do that in a month. Um, you know, with, you know, one of the ways I learned so much from, from with, under Vic Braden is, as you know, we use his textbooks. His books were our textbooks. So I had people reading the, reading the books that I knew they weren't reading the books. You know, you couldn't even have a discussion with them. Okay, read chapter two. And they wouldn't read chapter two as a group and say, okay, now we'll go home, type out these notes, bring them tomorrow, and we'll go back over chapter two. Uh, what, what we did in the 80s, um, I don't think that's been replicated in, on planet Earth um, since we did that. You know, how oh, many... How many people are going to get, we're going to take this core information and we're going to practice in a lab setting, you know, 15 hours a week. And then you're going to go off for the summer and you got to come back. And, and we had all sorts of extras, do this, do that. But no, I, I mean, you know, some parents come. I out. think it's, re- I think it's replicated, but it's in fields like surgery. Say that again? To become a surgeon. I, I think it's only replicated in different fields. Oh yeah. Like in becoming a surgeon. Um, you know, and yeah, what you had us do. I mean, and that, that was, that, that's not being replicated in tennis coaching for no, sure. I, I told a young kid the other day who wants to be a brain surgeon and I, I, he has the aptitude to do it. So I said, you know, about 15, 20 minutes from here, there's a parking lot. And I put myself in a position where I went from BMOC, where I was uh, made the varsity hockey team as a freshman. It was the biggest sport on campus. And I go, well, you know, I'm not going to make the NHL. And I uh, came up with this idea. My brother was studying hockey. I'll study tennis, but I was told you have to learn how to play. Long story short, I just I came to Florida, got on an airplane, got off the airplane, didn't know one person, and ended up making a contact with a gentleman who uh, I had a great setting at this five-star hotel where I could go anytime I wanted and hop cars, and, and that's how I, I never called home for a penny. And with that, I can, I'm just telling those kids, I could, you think I was excited to look at that parking lot and go, you know, I later went back to school and did this and did that. But, um, you know, I took the role of starving artist and said, yeah, okay, this is what I'm going to do for three years. You know, I think if, about Braden is if you expect your students to play, you should expect yourself to play. You don't have to be a great player. But, um, you know, young coaches, uh, they need to still find time to go work on their own game. I mean, eventually they come to that crossroad where, you know, they got to be wrapped up in their students' game, not their own game. But um, if you yeah, if you expect your uh, your players to make changes, I think people who can uh, teach also have changed their game. You know, yeah. where, you know, a guy by the name of Jim Mantle, uh, he went to study in person with Vic Braden before I did, a bright guy from New York. He was from the medical world and the BS of jackocracy. He went back to the medical world, but... Uh, you know, he was just a bright guy and, you know, he was studying Braden and, uh, you know, he would tell me something, you know, Hey, you're tossed too high. You tossed too far left. And it's like, okay. Um, I didn't really understand it to the level until I actually just ended up spending so much time with me again, coming back to, you have to spend time with the information. 
You got to, yeah. you got to work the information. It's just like a musician. You don't become a great musician by taking lessons. You know, who's going to learn to play a guitar, the kid who takes a lesson and doesn't practice or the kid who doesn't take lessons and they play till their fingers bleed. Yeah. Uh, you gotta, you gotta be constantly massaging the information all day, every day. Yeah. It's interesting though. Coming back to hockey, uh, I found myself in New York, the masters was played. And so there was, uh, you know, my brother was set it up where I was in felt form, uh, the large auditorium next to Madison square garden. And I had access to all the practices and, but I was there long enough to be at the, you know, Ranger hockey games and the Ranger practices. And, uh, Dave Maloney, who his brother, Don is the president of the Calgary Flames still. And, uh, I know Dave, he, he was a captain of the Rangers at one time, but I, he had worked at Bobby Orr's uh, hockey camp and, you know, we're out the hockey players in those days. Uh, you know, they were drinking protein shakes. They were having beers afterwards. And, uh, I remember just mm-hmm. going, watching the Rangers play. And by that time I was, you know, three years into being a tennis bum and proud of it. And just going, well, can you work at Bobby Orr's tennis camp? Don't you know how to slide a pass? And, <laughs> but that's just the culture. I mean, you know, the, the, the coach who just won the NCAs, I listened to a podcast, Quinnipiac. And it's an amazing story how he took that program from a division three, it became division one and it's a fantastic story. Yeah. And I think coaches should be looking for those stories because we don't have enough of those in tennis. And uh, he was asked about the kids, and he said, yeah, the kids today are more sensitive, so you, you have to find ways to deal with that. With, uh, yeah, char- yeah, character 101. Here, yeah, it's, it's critical. Here's a, we just had a young kid come here to visit, and he's listening. Um, and, you know, his, co- his college coach-to-be sent, sent him down here, so... Uh, Mackenzie McDonald, who we spent some time with through Matt Clore, uh, indirect time too, were, you know, sending films of Mackenzie playing and film of his strokes. And I mean, I have a, it's either on my uh, AOL account or um, my telephone. So the conversation came up where um, TFO, Fritz, uh, Paul, uh, Francis TFO, Taylor Fritz, Tommy Paul, and Mackenzie McDonald are playing doubles. And I just said, uh, that's a clinic on how not to play doubles. Mm-hmm. And if somebody were to hear that, I think that, you know, that's where coming back to myself, like who am I to criticize a co- hockey player playing in the NHL? Um, I remember the number one junior in Ireland, Dervla Kelly came to spend time with us. And we're watching Wimbledon, and I was criticizing the people on TV playing Wimbledon. She's going, how can you do that? Again, the best players in the world, they're the ones that are in the public eye. And if you do your homework, you know, they have holes in their game. And then if you listen to what they have to say, they, they know they, they have holes in their game. But recently, and it's interesting the connections you have, I have, by being around the game for so long. But Rajiv Ram recently, he wasn't selected to be on the Davis Cup team. Now he's playing, and he's playing with Austin Krychek. Uh, I think they're, I don't know, two, three in the world, respectfully. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I don't know, Marty Fish, you know, you know, did he resign? Was he fired? He stepped down. He's no longer coaching the Davis Cup team. But Ram wasn't invited. And it was Taylor Fritz, Tommy Paul, and... Um, 
But I get Francis TFO, Taylor Fritz, Tommy Paul. And, you know, you think, well, okay, all right, we're going to have Jack Sock. Well, he plays one up, one back. Everybody else plays one up, one back. You know, then it's like, well, are you going to split the money four ways instead of five ways? And, and um, but right to the highest level of tennis, to have an American who's ranked one, two in the world, and he's not even selected to play Davis Cup. Yeah. Uh, I always tell kids in tennis, I said, it's okay for tennis to be crazy, but you can't be crazy. Yeah. And, you know, the people that we train, you train, they have a BS detector. They can watch someone teach tennis or someone says something to them. And that puts them in a really awkward position. We have to train players. So, hey, you're going to go to this college, play for this coach. He's great with this, that, and the other thing. But, you know, they're going to tell you to do this on the forehand. And, you know, then how do you deal with that? Um, you know, that's where I think kids have to have the capability. Hey, can I meet with you one-on-one? Let me tell you what I'm trying to do. You know, can, you know, hey, my, my junior coach can show you film. This is where my forehand was. This is where my forehand is now. Um, Raven Claussen, who I know you've met, he's been at your mm-hmm. place. And, uh, you know, the, the better you become, I mean, Matt, Matt Clore traveled so much with Mackenzie McDonald for so long. And he says, it's crazy. You know, you're, you're at this f- facility, you're at this event. And, you know, Mackenzie's climbing up the ladder and John McEnroe sits down and says, hey, this is what I think you should do. And then the next mm-hmm. thing you know is Brad Gilbert sits down and goes, ah, this is what I think you should do. And then, you know, they're in the booth and then they're going to they're gonna name drop. And, it, you know, even though they're both famous people in tennis, McEnroe and Gilbert, they go, yeah, yeah, no, I was talking to McKenzie and this is what I told them. And, and uh, so it, it's amazing the interference um, all, all the way up. I mean, and actually for uh, tennis parents, you know, they, the term I heard a coach use recently, uh, Dave Secker, is that the parents become intoxicated when the, the kid has some success. And uh, the, you don't know till you know. And it, right, all the way up to the very highest levels, it's, there's just so much confusion. Um, yeah, it, it's tough for people to uh, see through it. It, um, you know, it, there, it, as you, I always try to prepare people that are, you can tell they're headed on a path where they're going to start breaking through. And I try to, you know, long in advance when you know, it's going to come just to get them to be able to discern, um, things that are really valid, really pertinent and, and, and see through the, uh, see through the fog and, um, I, you know, I, I just think back, it's, it's probably been 20 years or longer than that, but this one kid who kind of grew up right inside the system, the environment, and he ended up semis of the Orange Bowl in 12s. And, and, you know, the Orange Bowl was a solid tournament back then for sure. And it is longer than 20 years ago. And, and I remember right outside the court, I'm always on, you know, telling his parents, I said, Hey, I said, this has to happen or this may never happen again. This result may never repeat itself. And the dad literally, you could have heard him all over the facility yelling at me. And, and, uh, but I, you know, I was just kind of warning him because their boy was big, you know, he he had facial hair at, at 12. And, and, uh, I was telling him that, you know, the semis of the 18th is a different animal there. And, um, he was going to have to, 
be a lot more complete in his game and not so one dimensional. And, and, um, and I told him, I said, now you guys are, now you guys are going to start getting, uh, I think like Andres Barboza, as you mentioned, now you guys are going to start getting knocks on your door. And, uh, a lot of the pretty people are going to start giving you attention. And, you know, the relationship didn't last. Um, it dissolved at about 16, um, but it really began to dissolve right at that conversation, you know, at age 12. I mean, that's where the erosion began because, you know, it sounds, I think a lot of people, Steve, look at, you know, what you do and uh, the people like myself and it almost looks like we're trying to polarize somebody, but it is. It's, it's because we've seen that movie. We, we have seen that movie. And, and although their ending might be slightly different, the ending that we see isn't where, you know, we want it to go. And, and we want to help them get down the road to the best possible spot. And we want the movie to end in the best possible manner. And, and I think that it comes across in a way where some people perceive that as us being a little bit controlling, a little bit this and that. But, uh, you know, I tell this all the time. I mean, show, show me a good football coach, a good basketball coach that's not controlled that doesn't want control of an environment to make the team win. You have to have it. Yeah. And, and without it, it's almost impossible. And, and I think in this day and time, and in, in the decades I've been coaching, I think people are expecting us to, uh, you know, get incredible, incredible results and limiting the amount of control that we have to get those results. And, uh, I think it, uh, you know, I told, told a parent the other day, I said, listen, my, uh, my accountability to this project is going to be directly related to the accountability you have and, and, and the control you give me. Um, uh, otherwise, I mean, I'm not a miracle worker. And, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's confusing for people and there's just so much. It, it, tennis has just become so much of a, a big business. You, you sport in general has become such a big business and, you know, it, there's people that sound similar to the to you know to the to the naked ears that people hear with and um and i think it, you know there there's people that certainly are way more palatable to the average parent and family um yeah i, I and, love and it you, go, ahead. go ahead well i was gonna say i go no, on, no. i go on my long walks and uh dave fish i know he calls it talk radio and i you know before there was no podcast now there's you know i, I just recently read uh 2.5 million. Well, it was so long ago, maybe it's up to 3 million podcasts, but uh, I, I'd love to read more or listen, learn more about the character of tennis and the backstory. But let me, let me say a few things to follow up on what you just said is that the Eddie Herr, for example, in the Orange Bowl in the 12s and 14s, it's a USDA tournament. In the 16s and 18s, it's an ITF. So in, in, in that sense, the Eddie Herr is really not as international as people think it is. But what, I remember one time going to the Orange Bowl and being very excited to go back and watch Vlander play, and, and he wasn't there. I mean, he was a teenage sensation, and he wasn't. He 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 was. He didn't need to be at the Orange Bowl. Um, but what happens with a lot of really top twelve-year-olds, and you know, you and I don't have a crystal ball, but I, I mean, I would tell people, yeah, based on our background with core information, that our crystal ball is a little clearer than most. And it, parents don't realize that there's so many really good 12-year-olds that you just know they're going to play bottom of the lineup in a college, on a college team. And we used to say this, and that's not the case so much anymore because one-back one tennis is ruling the game. 
is that that kid is going to be not even considered to play doubles. They're just going to play bottom of the lineup. And then a lot of parents don't realize is that college coaches will plug you in at six and you're at six. They're not, you know, we junior coaches are trying to make everybody a number one. College coaches want to win. They want to keep their job. So they recruit a guy and they go, okay, this guy, his game, he's going to be a great counterattacker and he's got no offense and he's played 10 years of baseline tennis. He's going to do really well, get a high, high GPA and, uh, study accounting or engineering or whatever. And um, here's a phrase. Your best tennis is possibly behind you. Yeah. But that's where you got, you know, it's just see like, can we sit down with somebody and say, let me tell you that, you know, look at this film and look at these stats and how your kid's playing is your best tennis is probably behind you. This ties in with uh, what you said about an athletic director you know, that's where the top football coaches at the top universities, the AD works for them. That's, 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 I don't know if that's still the rule, but it was that way for a long time where that, you know, well, I'll be your head coach, but um, I'm not working for the AD. The AD is working for me. Um, mm-hmm. That's just interesting. You know, I, um, as I mentioned earlier, a group of us were at Tennis Memphis, the nonprofit, and you know, I had the self-motive going out there. I mean, I did meet with Andy Andrews before I went. He's the incoming president of the USTA. But unfortunately, his daughter was very sad. She fell, uh, she was a victim to cancer, and then she, she eventually passed away. So he, he, he uh, declined to be president of the, USP, of the USTA. But, you know, one of my friends made that happen, and he said, hey, if you go to Memphis, you know, I'll put money on the table for you to make what happens what needs to happen, happen, which would, be, which would be when you work with underprivileged kids for years and years. I mean, you know, that's really what our content is. Our content is free instruction. Like we've had free clinics or the dollar clinic. And, um, but with that, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to give a free clinic. It's not so easy to take underprivileged kids to tournaments. Okay. Mm-hmm. We've got to provide transportation. We've got to provide accommodations. We've got to provide food. But what happened in Memphis is they lost a tournament. The tournament went, and it was a famous traditional, I mean, it was on the calendar forever, uh, the Memphis yeah. tournament. Men, women, um, sometimes both. I mean, I'd have to go through that. But it was, you know, everybody knew Memphis, and they lost a tournament. So the facility, you know, now I understand it's townhouses. So the university in the city have built a $20 million facility. And mm-hmm. um, at one point with... Uh, you know, Jennifer Roberts was first the women's coach. She made it happen where um, Craig Tiley went in after her and he was the director of instruction. And then, then he became the interim coach and, you know, the rest is history. He, he did an amazing job where they went from obscurity to winning the national championship. And actually with that, I mean, I heard some trivia today. 1957 and uh, 2003, those are the only two years that a Big Ten team has won the NCAA men's tournament. And yeah, 57 was Michigan. Yeah, Michigan. And um, um, 2003 would have been. That's Tylee's team. Tylee's team, yeah. 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 But so Memphis, you know, they have, you know, it should really become a tennis learning center, just like what we try to do at um, Tyler, Texas, Tyler Junior College, is everybody needs to be on the same page. They need to be from the same book. And it really, it, it it needs to be, again, a learning center. So the team coaches and the instructors with the underprivileged kids, the, you know, the 
um, the kids from the private sector, everybody needs to be on the same page. And so I would say the same thing needs to happen with the USTA. Um, for three years, you know, we talk about, you know, this, I guess would come under RIP, RAP, RIP, and RAN. But for three years, um, you know, I was on the USDA campus. The place was three miles apart, three miles away. And, but how they teach tennis to a four-year-old to a six-year-old and then all the way up, and I don't think that was right, where the player development program, maybe it's still that way. It's separate. It's private. It's not open to the public. I, I, granted, granted, they need to control the courts, and if the, if the pros want some privacy, but um, hey, let's have these young kids see the best players practice. And then they've struggled getting the best players to stay there. You know, and the instruction is free. I mean, it's like, well, what's happening here? But everybody should be on the same page. And it really comes down to that Bradenism, the dimensions of the court and physical laws dictate stroke production. Uh, no coaches theory or any whatever. Like, let me say, can you say it? I just fumbled and stumbled here. Um, a Bradenism. No, no coach's opinion dictates how, how to yeah, hit the yeah, tennis yeah, ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should be able to say that. I make people, it's kind of the 11th hour here, I make, make people memorize that. <laughs> and that, that, well, it, that, that's a commandment. Okay, you need to learn that. And it's like, okay, we're all going to be on the same page. Um, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, well, you know, it, it again, it, it ties into that. It's like I could hear somebody, I could picture somebody hearing what we're saying there and thinking there we go teaching everybody the same i mean it if somebody has a flaw they have a flaw and you know if you can statistically analyze it and you can document it and validate the flaw on video that matches up with the statistics i mean it is what it is and you know i was always fascinated when i you know i got to live with you know jenna's parents back when i was in tyler and Craig and I were going to UT Tyler, working for you, making millions of dollars as your interns. And um, and then he, he went on to work for EDS and he, he brought home information on change in, in the business culture. And, and I'll never forget. This is your father-in-law. All, yeah, my father-in-law. He's a very smart guy. And, and you know, I just take these manuals and just read them. They had nothing. I mean, I, I don't know anything about technology, but um, the, the, the things were really on cultural changes and, and how to make people, you know, modify behavior. And, and it, I, I always go back to that breaking of denial because there were all these steps that had to occur. But if step number one didn't occur, the breaking of denial, then all the other steps were just, they were actually null and void. They were useless. And so, you know, I've really tried to do that in my day in and day out approach. I mean, and, and, you know, it's just so evident to me that when you're, you know, when you spend a fair amount of time around certain people, there's just not going to break denial. And, and, and unfortunately, it takes them to hit rock bottom or they just go through their life never breaking the denial. And, and I think that, um, you know, whether it's a player or whether it's fellow coaches, teachers in the industry, I mean, it's, uh, I think it's hard to break denial if you don't have the exposure and you haven't been exposed to, you know, to, to, to the knowledge, to the truth, or if you're a player to the level of play where you realize you aren't that good, you know, I mean, 
I remember when I was, you know, thinking I could play a little bit in my 20s. And you said something to me. So you, you said, I tell this story. I don't know if you remember saying it yet. You said, Anderson, you got a great serve. But the problem is you wear shorts, not a skirt. And uh, <laughs> I didn't say that. Um, I'm too nice. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> and, but it was true. And, you know, it, it, it was just a matter of accepting the truth. And then am I going to act on it? And am I going to get out and, you know, coil my body a little bit better and, you know, get rid of the old down together, up together, scratch the back toss that, that hindered me from, you know, serving well, um, you know, because I, I got off to a poor start because I, I could throw a ball a mile. But, uh, um, you know, and that breaking of denial is, uh, I think, when you, the more political the organization you deal with, I think that, I mean, it just, it's, it takes just a Herculean effort to, to try to impact one person inside of it, let alone the organization. Even if you have, you know, I, that, that's my feelings anyways. Uh, coach from Minnesota calls me up all the time, Tom Belay. He has a line. Um, certainly everybody likes a little pat on the back. He says about us, you have enough credibility to choke a horse. And yeah. I don't really even like the word credibility. I don't really like to, okay, we're going to put, we're going to put photos up of kids winning weekend tournaments. I know parents have started doing that. And I think initially they just innocently started doing to send their aunts and uncles, but then now, you know, everybody's just sharing. It's not really like it's for family. It's everybody and their brother is, you know, holding up the two inch trophy and putting it on social media, crazy, crazy times. But um, there was a girl in the NCA finals, that was two different times um, training with us, and not to mention names. I, you know, I was at your place one time, and she showed up there, but she didn't. She did start the course. You know, did she start the course as a complete beginner? No, but she was making the changes, and and um, you know, NCA finals, and you know, not in the singles lineup. Um, and then there was another player. Not saying whether it's men's or men or women or whatever, but that supposed to come down here after the tournament and we're a few people said oh is that the guy supposed to come down here they watched him hit one serve he's got got palm up and you know it's amazing how far people can go in tennis and not be told something that's just so obvious but it's only obvious if you see it if you don't see it you don't see it but once you see it you always see it um i'll tell you this well you just said something too steve before you know you just said something that i think is so key too on you know, you said it's amazing how far people can go without being told something. And, and in a sense, it's amazing how far they can go without something. And I think it's, a again, a testimony to how important character is. Because, um, you know, a uh, group was visiting a few weeks ago, and I said, I said, don't think because we're going to get forehands, backhands, serves in line that you're going to automatically fall into place and everything's going to work out. I said, I'm sorry, who was, who was visiting? Some kid? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, I said, that's that's A, but B, grit, C, character, work ethic, fight, hunger, desire, passion. And, you know, I think that, you know, going back to that kind of thing and, and what Andreas, uh, Coach Andreas here said, you know, that people that really understand the great base, 
that have lived it either through like I was fortunate with you or coach Andreas and his wife here. Um, it, it's a character. It's a, it's a, it, it's a, it's a culture that goes way beyond just the, the nuances of the technique and, 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 and it, 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 it touches on so many, many more things. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I think that, a huge miss, you know, the, the tactical side of the game is often overshadowed uh, inside of the great base system in the, in the not, you know, the people that are not really that heavily entrenched in it and involved in it on the outside, so to speak. I think that the tactical side is often overshadowed. I think the mental components are often overshadowed, even though, you know, the credit is given to Dr. Lair and others and, um, but I think it's overshadowed because uh, people just haven't delved into it. You know, you used to always tell us as young tennis teachers, you know, don't critique anything about an organization until you've been a part of it and lived it. And, and then, then you have an opinion on it somewhere down the line, but you don't do it until then. And, and I think that, you know, that's good advice for anybody listening that's never really uh, dipped their toes in this water. Uh, no, even I mean, yeah. I tell people one year minimum. Uh, you have some place to work. Go a year before you even engage in a conversation to criticize. I mean, just you're not in position. I mean, I think it takes people a year to figure out. Okay, yeah, I'll tell you what's the, going on here. The crazy world we're in. There's a kid that uh, you know came from South America, <clears throat> landed here, and family had some tough times, so helped him out and, a few years ago and. Um, you know, gave him access to the program and, and tried to help him the best we could. And he, he's playing college tennis now at a small D2 uh, program and came back and asked me for a job this summer. And, you know, last year I turned him down. I thought he was a little bit arrogant and, and uh, um, forgot his roots a little bit. And this year I accepted it. And, and the first day uh, upon arriving back, he hasn't gainfully started employment yet. He uh, told me he'd like to meet with me for a few minutes because he has a lot of thoughts and ideas on how to make the academy better and uh, make uh, the program better and this and this and this. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, I love Coach Andreas for so many reasons. And, uh, you know, this, I told this kid, I said, well, let me give you a real world. I said, don't, don't I said, I, I have a minute, but if, if you want to access my time, I said, come today between 5.30 or tomorrow between 5.30 or 6.30 a.m. I said, if you can't do that, I said, write a, uh email to me and have it on my computer by uh, tonight at 5 p.m. And I'll look at your ideas and I'll go from there. Coach Andreas, I forwarded him the email and he said he, he sent back a pretty strong email because the kid is from his home country in Venezuela. And he said... Uh, he said, you should have written two words. Thank you. And that's good. Uh, Moneyball, and, uh, the, the, the movie or the book, Moneyball, um, it's, it's something like this, paraphrasing. It's amazing. I played the sport my whole life, and I know so little about it. That, 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 yeah. that really, really applies to tennis. And tennis, oh, and every, everyone's heard me say, when crummy plays crummy, who wins? Crummy wins, but they don't know they're crummy. But, you know, there's just so many things that people agree upon. Okay, we're going to come out of the starting blocks this way. Okay, this is the way we stand at the follow line. Okay, this is the stance where we're swinging at a baseball bat. And 
Uh, but tennis uh, is it's just loosey goosey. Um, here, here's a story for you. We got to wind this down, but um, yeah, I think rap, rant, and rant, rap, rip, and rant. Uh, we should just say, okay, let's go back because people want us to do that. Okay, let's just go over the volley again. Let's go over the forehand again. Um, yeah. So paint the picture here. Tell a story. Matt Clore, who his father taught him to do the ball really well, but he made some changes for sure within what we do. And um, he, he still to this day, um, he's getting close to 40. He, he hits the ball really well. Um, actually, Ben Shelton, Matt's at the University of Florida now, and he, Ben Shelton made a comment. Uh, no one on this campus has ever hit a ball better than Matt Clore. I think that yeah. it would be a very good match if uh, Ben Shelton had to serve underhand. Um, yeah. But anyway, so Matt, his young daughter, um, you know, it's not like tennis has been everything to her, but she's been taught to hit the ball really well. She, you know, you toss balls to her underhand, and people that have any eye for tennis, even if they don't really know the nuts and bolts, they'll go, okay. It's like people don't know the nuts and bolts of why Roger Federer was so good. We have a short video clip on that. So anyway, the guy who's in charge of the tens with the USTA, um, you know, he's really impressed with how Matt's daughter's hitting the ball. And mm-hmm. he's, he's, you know, he started to talk to Matt. He goes, I'd like to really talk to you about it. And Matt had mentioned, the, he just mentioned briefly the great base. And he goes, well, I've heard a lot of negative things about that. And a girl that you've trained, I know I was on the court with her when she was really young, Ashton Kruger's like four courts down on the indoor courts. And he said, see that girl over there? How do you think she was taught how to play? And, and then the gentleman, yep. the gentleman said, "Hey, hey, we got to get together. I need to sit down and talk to you." But you know that never happened. Um, it, it's not going to be a coffee table discussion. You're not going to go to Starbucks and say, "Okay, let's let's just chit chat." Um, you know, months is a good start. Years is what it takes. But pe- people can, you know. Uh, Start on page one. I mean, with uh, we have that course, Tennis Intelligence Applied, and that's what we're trying to do is just really carry the torch from tennis teachers from the past because, um, you know, it's, it's like, say, with Braden, for example, um, you know, what do the incoming tennis teachers know about, you know, the not just the science, but the application and what, what, how Braden, what, what Braden did for the game? I mean, it's just going to be forgotten. Yeah, you got to bleed tennis. I like that. Let's, uh, we'll, we'll end on that one. You got to bleed tennis. Um, yeah, I like the line where people say they have no blood in the game. Um, and tennis is a very, very difficult sport. And the mistake we're making is we may, it's way, way too easy to become a tennis teacher. It just doesn't match up. Very easy to become a tennis teacher, but very, very difficult to become a tennis player. But yeah, let's do this more often. A, a wrap, a rip, yeah. and a rant, and uh, we'll cover the other hours. I'm but, ready. Uh, but all I'm the ready. all the best, Anytime. and uh, we'll we'll follow up. But thanks for your time. Appreciate it. I know yeah. we got a lot. All right, of it. Steve. All right, adios. All right. Bye. Have a good night. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, David Anderson. Um, podcast. You know, this is probably a lengthy one. I'm going to guess, and. I know if the podcasts are three hours, and crazy enough, we have people talk about bleed tennis as they've told us, don't shorten the format. Um, so we're staying with the diehards. And, you know, you listen to 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. And we always say tennis treasure chest. And I think uh, Dave Anderson certainly um, had 
added some pearls of wisdom, some golden nuggets to a, te- a tennis treasure chest. So we got to shut up. So I'll say shut up to myself, Steve, shut up. And thanks for listening. Till next time, adios amigos. Mm-hmm.